Okay, and we're live here on the Twin Peaks What Lies Beneath Mirror Podcast. Here on Magazine Radio, you're with your curator, Mike Puskas, your spiritual tour guide, if you like, taking a deeper look at the dystopian universe of David Lynch and the wonder that is Twin Peaks. So how are we all feeling out there? We're all in a a kind of a a displaced state, somewhat limboed out, if you like, locked down due to the outbreak and spread of this coronavirus. And uh, it's not easy for many. This is a new kind of a process that we're all trying to come to grips with, try to make sense of. And I think it's very fitting that within that kind of deeper mystery of the dream that we uh, we have another deeper look into the Twin Peaks universe and we're going to discuss in great detail tonight uh, the character arcs of Leland Palmer Sarah Palmer and even look into how Nadine Gardner ultimately crosses over all facets of the Lynchian landscape But let's begin by taking a moment to feel into the fact that we've just gone through a pretty powerful Aries new moon and I hope we all took the moment to set a bit of an intention because new moons are all about new beginnings. And when you have the sun and the moon in Aries both in Aries, a very fiery energy, it's pretty easy when you're being confronted with new things that sort of challenge our sensibilities to get a little bit kind of riled up, a little bit rough around the edges and perhaps a bit frustrated with your given circumstance. And you have to also attribute to the fact that, you know, we've been told in no uncertain terms that Life as we know it will never really be the same. Now, we can either buy into the fear and the delusion or we can see this as a, a liberating sense of drawing us back into a more internal landscape of the heart. And I love to talk about and talk in, for that matter, the language of the heart because it's a great reflection of where this quintessential moment in our histology as a species is ultimately going to take us. And so we're going to take a moment to recognise the fact that there are some important planetary transits that are aligning to the more tuned-in emotional space that many of us are dealing with. And later on in the show, um, I'm very pleased to present a special guest, Kimra Manuri in Florida, who's recently become a Peaky, a Twin Peaks convert, if you like, and uh, she's uh, recently immersed herself in the beginnings, the pilot and the first season, and she's into about, I think she said around the middle of the second season, so it's going to be great to get somebody in 2020 giving us all a very fresh perspective on something that's become very dear to our hearts. 
So let's context that. Let's put that into a context. Saturn has entered at zero degrees in Aquarius and will be here with us for the next two years. Now, finding ourselves more connected than ever before because Saturn is all about curriculum. It is the planet, the father planet, that is stating to the parents, the family dynamic, that you're going to need to look at adaptable means and ways of redefining yourselves in this new landscape brought about by the COVID-19 situation. We have to become more adaptive to our new environment and Mars is squaring that particular aspect of, of Saturn in Aquarius and as a result we're, we're becoming more dependent if you like or codependent not words I really like to talk about too much but more codependent on the internet right everybody has got internet and now that we're all relegated to a fairly sort of a, a suppressed state at home we're all very very much dependent and codependent on the internet and we're going to be fed all manner of different types of information some disinformation within the same breath but nonetheless we're all connected there and as Mars is squaring that aspect and Chiron is very much in Aries we have this incredible fire and water coming together this is a very fiery type of energy and David Lynch and Mark Frost wrote a very fiery screenplay when presenting the somewhat idyllic and yet rather displaced small town of Twin Peaks. So I think it'll be great to be able to look at the different character arcs and the way their metaphorical reflection ultimately comes back and mirror reflects our own lives in so many ways it's uncanny and I think at the end of the day we're getting to a particular point now where it's uh, it's becoming more and more apparent that in order to be really and truly adaptive um, we're going to need to also allow ourselves through our worthiness to receive the gift of co-creating very much in the, in the home environment. And I think that's also going to be uh, a, a really sort of a, a powerful new transition for so many of us. Now, the interesting thing about that is that the music that I'll be playing tonight is essentially going to be very much uh, a frequency, a, a vibrationary type of reflection of this more insular state of beingness that many of us are now becoming much more adaptive to. And it's also a powerful kind of mid to late week because my group, um, The Mile, recently um, completed a song uh, in the studio for the new album, The Feedback Loop, which we'll be talking more and more about a little bit later on in the show, 
with Kimra and, uh, and some of the other insights. And we wrote this song called The Maze, which is very, very much about the kind of dichotomy of trying to do the right thing but sort of being drawn back into a somewhat expression of a lower vibration. And this is the first time ever played outside of the studio, so it's a world premiere. It's The Maze by Mile featuring Ricky Buckingham on lead vocals. You're on Magazine Radio. Okay, we're having a few technical difficulties there. It's not playing the right track, but anyway, no big deal. We can always get back to it a bit later. Uh, you're on Magazine Radio, and uh, you're on the Twin Peaks What Lies Beneath Mirror podcast and live stream. What Lies Beneath, indeed. So, welcome everybody. Wanted to take a moment to let everybody know that we are all in lockdown mode here in the continent of Australia, and uh, many of us are using this time to go more internally within ourselves in an effort to kind of clear a lot of the uh, unwanted and rather piled up baggage that's sort of accumulated over time because we've been so wrapped up in our busy lives. In this particular episode of Twin Peaks, What Lies Beneath, I'm going to look at things from uh, a much wider perspective and discuss the character arcs, the dossiers, if you like, of Leland Palmer, Sarah Palmer and Nadine in juxtaposition to two very separate character landscapes, which I'll go into greater detail. But I do want to state from the get-go that we are dealing at the moment, today, the 26th of March in the year 2020, the 2 and the 6 is the 8 and the 3 is 11, so it's an 11, a 1 and a 1, which is a universal number of looking in the mirror and seeing ourselves for who we truly are. And this is very much influenced by the power of Chiron, the wounded healer, in the fiery energy of Aries. We just had the new moon in Aries yesterday, and I have to say that it was a very tumultuous, rather turbulent, uh, rather unsettling, somewhat displaced energy that many of us felt that we were at odds with each other, in the sense we were odds with the kind of shadow self and our self that we experience in the in the 3D every day because there were so many different um, anomalous thought patterns kind of coursing through our psyche that we were trying to kind of balance out or, or make sense of. And trying to make sense of who we are by defining ourselves in any given moment is a very difficult exercise for the best part. And so when I get a chance to go within and meditate and create these um, more illuminated perspectives that I offer in these particular podcasts and live streams here on Magazine Radio, I'm super humble to try to understand the deeper tolerance that we all need to show for our self-circumstance 
And the best way for us to deal with that is to really find peace in our breathing, take a moment of pause, reflect on what's important to us, and not allow the fiery energy of Aries and the square to Chiron to well up within us and drag us back down into what I call the student modality of the lower vibration. We need to be retaught and we need to recycle certain habits and patterns in an effort to understand them better and before we can really move forward. Now I also want to say that I am very thankful to everybody that has supported the show so far. The listener numbers have surprised both myself and Michael. We feel that it's interesting how some people will kind of float in on the live stream or float in on a particular podcast halfway through and and remain with us uh, for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, some stay for an hour, um, some, you know, kind of then earmark, oh, that was interesting, I might come back to it. So we're sowing seeds, and that's what this next phase of the Saturn-Pluto conjunction that has really permeated the energy of 2020 is really all about. We're sowing seeds that will now grow into a much more expansive conscious understanding of who we are in this rather stifled and hard to breathe moment in our histology. And I love the way we can use the meta-universe and the dystopian outlook of David Lynch in Twin Peaks as a means of reflecting the very essence, the core essence, if you like, of what's going on in our own lives. So many can truly relate, not just the peaky fans that are there no matter what and are just, you know, hungry for whatever can be brought forward and revealed, if you like, that continues to feed the Garmonbosia that they need in order to keep their fix of Twin Peaks, their addiction to the, uh, to the incredible Twin Peaks landscape. But those that are seeing so many comparisons, so many metaphorical reflections from the show in their own lives. And one thing I said last week that I thought was really interesting is I urged people who were curious, if you like, to revisit the show, to go back and revisit the pilot through new eyes and new conscious perception, revisit season one, which you'll notice season one and two are in the old 4-3. That's how far we've come in media and television. 4-3 was a certain configuration of the viewing display that we watched our shows through. Season one and two were in 4-3. The return and and everything else that we saw was in 16-9 widescreen. So that's how far the dichotomy of, of being the viewer in the television audience of consumable violence we've come. 
But to revisit the show through a new set of eyes, through a new heightened level of sensory perception, if you like, <clears throat> pardon me, gives us a clearer understanding of just how close to the bone David was in presenting a world, both light and dark, and the dichotomy therein, the paradox, if you like, of collapsing waves into lucid forms and solidified particles of expression and how we receive it today because it's not anything remotely close to the way that we received the transmission way back when it first broadcasted. Okay, great. Well, let's have some more music now. This is a track by a New Zealand artist by the name of Tessa Drummond and her song Sold. You're on Magazine Radio, The Twin Peaks, What Lies Beneath Mirror. This is Tessa Drummond.
Tessa Drummond and her track Sold from her debut album. You're on Megazine Radio, you're listening to the uh, Twin Peaks What Lies Beneath live stream. What Lies Beneath, indeed. And what I like to do is I actually revisit the entire dystopian universe of Twin Peaks once a year. That's right, I go back through my DVDs and my Blu-rays and I watch the pilot, season one, season two, Fire Walk With Me, The Missing Pieces, the interstitial uh, elements that were also released as part of uh, special features and extras and then I watch The Return and then I allow all of it to once again immerse me absorb within me and and give me a more immersive experience and understanding of the bigger picture of what's going on and how it reflects directly reflects back on my own life so once again we're going to listen to something that was recorded uh, a while back not a great deal but it was back in 2019 none of these recordings have been made in 2020 the latter half or the last quarter of 2019 which I I personally found the most challenging for my own kind of heightened and sensitive spiritual journey and building my seven sense and realizing just how illusory everything in the assimilation was and where I was attaching and where I was detaching that's what a kind of compelled me to make these particular recordings, which are simple observations from my personal perspective for the passion I have for Twin Peaks. So once again, I ask you to sit back and relax, grab a damn fine cup of coffee, take the plastic wrap off your favourite cherry pie, Mix the bitter and the sweet. 
and kind of just flow into Twin Peaks. What lies beneath? What lies beneath? Indeed. So today is the 19th of November in the year 2019. And once again, you can feel that it has a certain deeper significance to it, that there is a more esoteric, a more darker shadow and esoteric message readily available for those who are ready to receive the transmission. One of the things that I've been saying in referencing this deeper knowledge about the meta-universe that David Lynch is so well in tune with is the fact that it's time to start receiving and not always be in a state of gifting. The gifting makes us somewhat subservient to emotional outpour that seems rather outdated. And many of you have asked me to talk about my thoughts regarding the rather convoluted emotion that love has become. I have replaced what I consider to be the external expression of the love principle with what is known as compassionate strength. To feel strongly compassionate about someone or something demonstrates from the highest order and the highest octave of light integration into your own light body, into your own conscious outlook, into your own expansive being as a consolidated and or committed collapsing of the wave. You are collapsing the wave and allowing your true feelings true emotional state to ultimately emerge and this is something that I believe was very inherent within the cast of Twin Peaks and I want to go all the way back somewhat to the beginning and just do what's called a preliminary overview of the human landscape that inhabited the rather large you know, somewhat um, undulating and somewhat manic and chaotic world of this small town, Twin Peaks, in upstate Washington. Now, we have two very distinctive types of cast or characters in the show, but all of them represent an underlying or an underpinned theme that Lynch was very conscious of when he and Mark Frost wrote the series or wrote the show. For, her, for those who are really, really green to this and somewhat novice, Twin Peaks started from an original idea that was supposed to be about Marilyn Monroe's relationship with both Bobby and Ted. Essentially, that was so wrapped up in such a chaotic dichotomy of what was considered to be acceptable and or proper that it became almost like a minefield to navigate, let alone negotiate in a, in, into a state of external expression that a movie and or television show could be about. 
But what it did expose at that early stage was Lynch and Frost's desire to scrape underneath the fingernails of society, so to speak, in order to ascertain a more clearer and somewhat defined picture of what really was going on from a cultural standpoint. Now, this is an important metaphor to understand, right? What lies beneath most of Lynch's work, his expression of art has represented the darker underbelly of what we perceive in the illusory reality to be a very clean cut presentation of society and societal influence. So he made damn sure that when he was scraping under the fingernails of the Twin Peaks mythology or the Twin Peaks ever-expansive toroidal field of infinite probability and possibility that certain characters would embody that vision to a T. Now, while I'm on a roll, I'm going to go a little bit deeper and try to discuss each individual character from a spiritually aligned, tuned, light and dark sound vibration. And I'm going to start with two of the oldest characters in the series. And that's not talking about Judge Milford or his brother. That's not talking about Andrew and it's not talking about Pete. But let's talk about Leland Palmer, the father of Laura, forced into constantly arriving at the darkest possible conclusion of embracing a pathway that was set for him at a very, very early age. Absolutely, let's get into that. But before we do that, let's have some more music here on Magazine Radio. You're listening to the Twin Peaks, What Lies Beneath, Miracast live stream. And this is Urban Dance Squad, an incredibly diverse group of great musicians and their track, Harvey Quint. You're on Magazine Radio. Oh, 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 oh. 
Mars Urban Dance Squad and Harvey Quint. You're on Magazine Radio. You're with Mike Puskas. This is the Twin Peaks, What Lies Beneath live stream. And let's take a moment to let everybody know that if you want to have a chat with us, we're on magazine.today. Now, we're going to figure out a way to basically be able to, you know, share these links with you live while we're on air, the various DJs here at the station. And on magazine.today, which is M-E-G-A-Z-I-N-E dot today, there's a chat window and you can send us your questions you can let us know whether you're digging the music what it is you'd like to hear more of and we'll be able to chat with you in real time so we're just you know getting all these teething little kind of problems out of the way and eventually we'll have everything in a nice smooth simple flow so uh just remember if you want to chat with us magazine.today So let's continue now with more of Twin Peaks, What Lies Beneath, What Lies Beneath, indeed. The story goes that his grandfather used to have a a holiday home on Pearl Lakes and that there was a house, in this case potentially the original embodiment of the convenience store with the woodsman and hence the Tolpers of Bob and so many of them, it's almost to a point where it's hard to kind of like put it into a perspective, but bear with me here. So he said that as a little boy, this man used to take him aside and flick matches at him and say, do you want to play with fire, little boy? cajoling him to kind of become somewhat associated with the sinister plan that this particular individual had for Leland. Now, Leland Palmer, as a young boy, was never inherently evil, but he was susceptible to the evil in those woods that Margaret talked about and that Harry S. Truman and Hawke were very, very well aware of, hence the advent of the Bookhouse Boys, two of which, of course, Big Big Ed and even uh, Norma's husband and a number of others were also part and parcel of the, of the, of the space. So... Leland was influenced by the inherent evil in the woods represented to us, the viewer, as the distorted violence playing out on our screens each day. Keeping in mind that this is 1989 and it was all about cops and robbers and shoot-ups and there was also a certain amount of resurgence of, you know, dysfunctional relationships in soaps and dramas and whatnot, but there was always this kind of pitting good against evil, the good characters versus the bad characters. So to a degree, Leland Palmer was born into this pathway that led him to be possessed, led his doppelganger 
let his darker shadow self to embody itself as a particle manifested in fear and the expression of dark evil to a point where the form became a physical manifestation. It became corporeal and drawn into his reality. And from a very early young age, he was molesting his daughter, Laura. Now, at that point in time, Laura, born of good, but in a way needing to sacrifice her virtue and sacrifice her chastity for the greater good, somewhat like, if you like, the mirror of what was taking place with Christ's mythology, creates that balance, that balance that was so desperately missing. And to some degree, because Leland was made, he was used in a parasitic host type of relationship, he wasn't aware of his actions. He wasn't actually consciously open and available to what was taking place. It was just happening. Now, if we aren't told about it by bringing some form of kind of shocking value, let's bring some shock value into it by introducing these tulpas and these shadow creatures, these shapeshifters from different dimensions or in different densities, then we're never going to really be triggered to take it seriously. We're not going to want... The human condition is all about being able to create closure and resolution to the things that we don't understand, hence our curiosity, hence our, our excited state, our heightened state of excitement when something presents itself and it doesn't immediately present a conclusion to it. This is really powerful stuff. And I don't want to get too deeply into each one because I want to immediately go to Sarah Palmer. Now, I've talked a lot about Sarah Palmer actually embodying her dark shadow self into a corporeal form as Judy. But Sarah's story presented in episode 8 of The Return during the Trinity Test, the first atomic explosion in San Alamos in New Mexico, that was essentially the death of innocence. That in order to actually be born into a whole new, higher octave of vibration, we need to kill the old. And this is essentially what a number of the deities or archetypes like Shiva represent. He is the destroyer of the old and allowing the birth of the new. So essentially, I believe that Sarah, once again, was never given a choice when she had her first kiss corrupted by her first tender kiss and then taken advantage by um, these uh, tulpas, these darker shadow beings in the form of the frogamoth, which was a distorted perspective that she had allowed to enter into herself. Absolutely. And we'll talk a lot more about Sarah and the embodiment of Judy next week on Twin Peaks. 
what lies beneath. But let's have some more music now. This is uh, a great track, a really kind of a dynamic high-range track by a local band here in Melbourne called Bellasira that made a big name for themselves over in L.A., and uh, a song called Wide Awake. Perhaps that's really where we're all arriving to now at this particular convergence point in our lives. We're becoming more aware, more sensitively aligned, and above all, we're becoming rather wide awake. You're on Magazine Radio.
Belisera and Wide Awake. You're on Magazine Radio. You're on the Twin Peaks. What lies beneath live stream? What lies beneath, indeed? She had welcomed it. Leland stated as he was dying in Cooper's arms that I opened myself up and I invited him in. Through the corruption of the first kiss that Sarah went through, she had opened herself up and invited the, the evil inherent in, in the form of the Frogamoth. So I think it's really great when we can dissect the characters that we came to learn and love on the screen as to perhaps the darker mythology behind them that Lynch proposed to us in a way through the mediums of electricity. The electrical charge is allowing all manner of possibility, the manner of electrons and neutrons and protons to explode in the collider of life and create. You know, our thoughts create and manifest. The electrical charges that Cooper travels through and that others are also very much beholden to its pattern of, of connectivity helps Lynch to create these alternate worlds, these alternate timelines that all intersect together. And to a T is exactly, if you look at the prequel of Fire Walk With Me, was the first letter clue of the name Robert, the T, found under the fingernail of Teresa Banks, the first so-called um, exponent of this deeper subconscious horror taking place. So let's look at the characters very flippantly and in regards to the meta form of a chessboard. Lynch was very careful in the way that he played his particular chess pieces on the larger chessboard of life in Twin Peaks. So we had Big Ed Hurley and we had Norma Jennings. These are two childhood sweethearts, which if you read the secret history of Twin Peaks, goes all the way back to how originally the Bookhouse Boys was literally a conglomerate of all the main men in the town. And Ed Hurley and Ray and Hank and Leo and Bobby and Sheriff Truman, Harry Truman and Hawk and Andy and all of those male dominant characters were part of a rather larger collective conscious that sort of looked after the town from the evil inherent. The evil inherent is essentially the evil that we harbour and allow ourselves to manifest clearly as a defined particle expression in our everyday lives. So Ed Hurley, and then he had his wife Nadine, 
And then, of course, Dr. Jacoby was essentially the central mediator of all of these dysfunctional relationships, kind of coming at it from a rather disassociated and somewhat Alex Crowley kind of perspective that there is already the darkness working within and every now and then we get a chance to manifest that clearly when presenting ourselves in the external and the now. So we have these very, very kind of what you see is what you get kind of characters that are all still part of a larger darker mythology and then we have those that are very much the nodes of connection to the darker mythology itself. And I think that the first season, including the pilot, was a very brave and bold move to bring forward nearly every element and or aspect through the way that the data, through the way the electricity travels as charged particles throughout these relationships and the way they play out on screen. So one of the first underlying things that becomes very, very obvious to us and apparent is this meta form in the meta universe of electricity charged particles, the fusion of energy and somewhat being broken down and somewhat being emotionally displaced in the mind's eye of most of the people that are predominantly playing these roles on screen. And many of the cast and characters will attest to the fact that they became very much an embodiment of the words on the page. Their roles became a definition of themselves, even in real life. Cheryl Lee and Cheryl and Fenn, Lara Flynn Boyle, all went to great lengths to explain that and on different panel discussions, Comic-Con, etc. like that, and of course those that still attend the Twin Peaks uh, festivals like Kimmy Robertson, Lucy, and of course uh, a number of the older players. So already what we have somewhat emerging is a lens of perception of society and culture as it existed and was presented to the, to the larger scope of the world, the global if audience, if you like, as a reflection, a metaphorical reflection of what was happening in our own lives at that particular time. Now, David was very, very aware. He, he had a heightened sense of sensitive perception to the way that this would touch the threads of the deeper expressions presented would touch certain individuals within the population. And he was also very aware that he didn't want this to be bandied about and somewhat shared as kind of listlessly as everything is today. You know, the screen culture within a, a, the millennial generation is essentially like fusing one screen of data transfer to another screen of data transfer and so on and so on through the thread 
of electricity, power. Remove power or the power source and everything fails. All systems fail. They, they really do indeed. And we're going to get into uh, a, a piece of music. One of the things about Twin Peaks that a lot of the, the big fans, you know, who've been with the show for a long time really enjoy and appreciate is David Lynch's particular vision when it comes to the artists and the soundscapes and the score that he creates around his shows and his vision. And one of the greatest parts of the return was at the end of every episode, all 18 hours, there were vignettes in the roadhouse that culminated with a live performance by an incredible artist and then the credits were run over the top of them. And I'd have to say that one of my favourites in the whole thing was the Chromatics and the way they brought out this incredible track called Shadow. These are the Chromatics. You're on Magazine Radio.
That was the Chromatics and their big single, Shadow, featured in the first episode of Twin Peaks The Return. Hope you enjoyed that. You're on Magazine Radio. You're with Mike Puskas, your spiritual tour guide, if you like. And this is Twin Peaks, What Lies Beneath. What Lies Beneath, indeed. And I'll be talking a lot about what I consider to be and what a few of us in the team consider to be the all systems fail analogy that underpins the whole Twin Peaks world, if you like, the higher octave of its landscape. So David was aware that back then, you know, the the show would broadcast at a particular time on a particular day and if you missed it and you didn't have a VHS recorder, then you had no way of recording it. So those who did record the show would actually then share that VHS copy with people at their work and school and, you know, in social groups and whatever else it is. But the expansion, the distribution of the content was fairly limited looking at it if all of a sudden back then we did have the information superhighway of the internet. And I think this is really important because David didn't want at this early stage of making his his statement by taking television to the farthest reaches of our conscious understanding and, and perception, he didn't want it getting too widely distributed. He wanted just enough so that people would kind of fuel the fire. Fueling the fire makes the fire walk that's happening on screen very visceral to us that are more aligned and in tuned with the meta-universe that Lynch is presenting to us on screen. And I think this is a very important observation to sort of understand in the way that we view and the way that we observe our lives and our lives in juxtaposition to other people's lives. So the landscape that Lynch was presenting was one that created a balance or an imbalance in the early stages of those that were very perceptively or sensorily if you can call that a word, um, but more sensory perception and or aware of underpinning or underlying themes of the plot structure. No one was more apparent in that capacity, in my view, and others I'm sure will concur, than Sarah Palmer. In the very beginning, in the pilot, Sarah is already has a heightened sense of anxiety knowing something is wrong. She doesn't know exactly how to put a finger on it, but she feels within her heart space, right, her total emotional grounded expanse within that something is not quite right and it has something to do with her daughter because, of course, Laura was rather troubled even before we got to meet her and follow her last days on Earth in the 
fire walk with me movie. So Sarah was very perceptively aware. Hawk was very perceptively aware. Log Lady Catherine Coulson was very perceptively aware. Major Briggs was very perceptively aware. Harry Truman was very perceptively aware. And even though both Lucy and Andy were presented as the lowest echelon of the, 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 the conscious melting pot, if you like, they were still somewhat perceptively aware that there's always been something not quite right within the landscape, within the environment in which they live and inhabit. So that's one group of our characters. The other group play their roles as if nothing else matters outside of themselves. These are what I consider to be the rather self-centred and selfish exponents of the Twin Peaks landscape. And they are really quite obvious. They're all in it for their own egoic gratification. They're in it for their own advancement. They are accumulators, yet they don't know how to ultimately release a lot of the track trauma that most of them have predominantly embedded within from very, very early ages of childhood. Ben and Jerry Horn are a perfect example. For them, the manipulation of power and the accumulation of wealth at whatever cost is the only driving force of the so-called politically uh, aligned movers and shakers of the town. Bobby Briggs, rather oblivious to his own circumstance, has dragged Mike into being, for lack of a better word, the town's bullies. So they're really only about maintaining their status within the community. And we have all the externals, all the Jacques Renou and the Jean Renou. And we have what's going on ultimately at One-Eyed Jacks. And we have what's going on, you know, at the Roadhouse. These are all parts of the external universe that David wants us to be mindful and aware of, but he doesn't want us to feel as if it's the important and or convergence choice point for us to get wrapped up in. It's a great way to kind of shake the dream up that we are the observers in the dream viewing our own lives unfolding through the interplay taking place with the characters on screen. So let's have some more music now. And uh, I thought basically we'd go back a little bit into the more kind of visceral uh, era of the uh, late 70s and 80s. And uh, this is Party's Fall from the Tinderbox album by... Susie and the Banshees, you're on Megazine Radio.
classic Susie and the Banshees track and Parties Fall from the Tinderbox album. You're on Magazine Radio. You're with Mike Puskas on the Twin Peaks What Lies Beneath live stream. What Lies Beneath, indeed. You're on Magazine Radio. You're with Mike Puskas on the Twin Peaks What Lies Beneath live stream. What Lies Beneath, indeed. And this feels like an invitation, a very powerful word that David consolidates with Mark Frost in the soap within the soap itself called the invitation to love. And it is almost like a metaphorical reflection of what is happening in the external. This is the internal struggle through which the mirror is essentially reflecting back on itself. And I think a really, really good character that kind of represents a a, a certain cathartic journey, a real character arc, would be Nadine Gardner. So Nadine, who is the wife of Big Ed Hurley, who owns the gas farm and who has the dysfunctional and somewhat, you know, poncy nephew of James Hurley, who is the current lover of Laura Palmer. So you can see how everything essentially steps off itself and connects in a much rather larger, expansive circle of the certainty that lies within uncertainty. We really don't know the level at which these relationships have grown over time until we read the final dossier, until we read Twin Peaks, the, the, secret, the secret history. But Nadine essentially is, you know, like everyone else, you know, an innocent that had her eye blew out by Ed on a hunting trip with a bit of buckshot basically took out her eye. And he felt so emotionally compelled in his absolute sorrow for her state that he allowed his own uh, feelings and or emotions to uh, take him down a, a road, an unrequited road of marriage to this woman. Now the fact that she's wearing a blindfold is very important to us, the, the audience, because we are going into this, this world of Twin Peaks somewhat with one eye open and one eye deliberately closed. We're closed to the way that our darker shadow self, our doppelganger, is essentially hidden in the darkest recesses of our subconscious or what astrologists like to refer to as the secrets embedded in the 12th house of the zodiac. And there is plenty of astrological uh, uh, synonyms and or serendipity taking place with moon cycles and certain types of solstices and or equinoxes and, you know, the Native American Indians. And there's so many different splinter groups taking place within the mythology of the show that it's very hard in a lot of ways to get it all through one sitting And this is something that I would like to urge people to consider. If it's been a while since you've seen the pilot, the first season, the second season, 
and even Firewalk with me and some of the other things like the missing pieces and the world between two worlds, the space between two worlds, it's probably advisable at this stage to go back and have another look. Your consciousness, uh, as well as the consciousness of the planet, has also evolved over the course of the last 26 years because as Laura stated in the finale of season two, I'll see you again to, 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 to Dale Cooper, I'll see you again in 25 years. The consciousness of the planet along with the consciousness of the species that is the human genome on the planet has evolved markedly. Our perception to things is much more heightened, it's sensitive and it's rather acute. So when you watch things on screen now, the way that the gamma and the way that these, uh, I would say, probably more delta and or somewhat beta waves that have been helping to condition and or brainwash and dumb us down to the fodder and filler content of consumable violence on television has also made us more sensitively aware to things that are important. So when we look at the way that certain roles play out, certain plot structures and character arcs play out on screen, we're much more aligned to understanding the deeper meanings behind the director's vision. So let's look at that once again. We are being shown as dreamers observing ourselves within the dream we're allocating ourselves to certain alignments to certain characters that is essentially wrapped up in this addictive and habituated pattern of consumable violence on television and David is asking us to put all of that aside and look at the terribly sorrowful situation befalling the town with the murder of the homecoming Queen Laura Palmer. He is trying to draw our attention to the intrinsic goodness that lies under the fingernails of Twin Peaks. And the fingernails of Twin Peaks is essentially the environment, the wooded uh, forest itself. Hence, whenever we are being told that there is something looming on the horizon that's bound to kind of go wrong, we get the wind in the trees, or we get the owls, uh, not what they seem, hooting in the trees, or we see and feel the owls and the moon. We're shown these rather static images in order to reference certain receptors in our brain to be mindful of it, to take it in and to take it to heart because it's going to have a much larger part to play in the next episode or even within the same episode framework. So Nadine is essentially the purveyor and yet she is the captor She's the releaser of us through her experiencing the consumable violence. 
that's taking place right before our eyes. We are hidden because we have been brainwashed, we have been manipulated, if you like, as a species, and that goes into an even much darker dichotomy, I assure you, but because of that, we are oblivious in a lot of ways to essentially what is taking place within the more darker framework and the underbelly of the town and the self-expression that's emanating and radiating outward from that core source. So Nadine is this somewhat kind of dreamer that's only got half the picture available to her. And she's very well aware, just like Sarah was very well aware of the abuse taking place with Laura through Leland, she's also very aware that Ed truly loves Norma and does everything in her power to keep them apart. And the whole idea of the oil, remember scorched engine oil, is the uh, kind of the subconscious trigger that brings Bob and his evil ways into a conscious focus is the grease that this rather confused individual called Big Ed Hurley is brought into the house while she's trying to make her noise-free drape runners and it's the actual means by which she achieves the goal of predominantly becoming more of an accumulator. She accumulates great wealth as a result of it, which we see in the return, you know, 25 years later in the 18 one-hour episodes uh, of the return because she has her own emporium in the, in the town centre and, you know, it's a big deal. Hope you're enjoying the kind of dossiers that I'm, I'm sort of dissecting tonight with Leland, Sarah and now Nadine. We're going to have some music and I thought an appropriate song that kind of represents that dichotomy between the two different character arcs that are taking place on screen with uh, a classic track by Kiss and uh, Black Diamond. So sit back and reminisce on this one. This is a, a really, really well-crafted, solid rocker by Kiss. Black Diamond, you're on Magazine Radio. Out on the street for a Pictures on the begun Got you under their thumb Hit it!
Black Diamond by Kiss. Probably from about 1972, I think it was, or 73. You're on Magazine Radio. You're on the uh, Twin Peaks What Lies Beneath live stream. What Lies Beneath, indeed. And I'll also talk about the mirror reflection of what's happening with that and the Fagazi or the false mask, if you like, played by Dr. Jacoby as Dr. Amp and his golden shovels. There is something very important to understand about the mineral of gold and in David's case the representation of fool's gold for, for a fool's paradise. So hopefully what we're doing here is we're, we're dissecting the dossiers of individual characters that have great radiating presence to many other characters. Nadine's plight, her situation to some degree, touches everybody else in the entire town. And I think that particular episode when she's kind of, you know, at the, uh, you know, at the funeral and she's wearing the, you know, the dress and she thinks she can see her own underwear. That's the innocence, the darling buds of innocence, the dark, you know, the, the, the tender boughs of innocence that burn first that the log lady lets Laura know in Fire Walk With Me before she goes in and commits this rather slutty, Behaviour with with the two kind of uh, local bogans. So there are so many serendipitous reflections, what we call metaphorical reflections, taking place. And David has these as recurring themes to keep bringing us back that this is essentially a dichotomy between good and evil, or the perception thereof, and how right in the middle of it is the rather rotten, you know, viewer, us, being so wrapped up and so embroiled in this kind of addiction that we have to consumable violence on television. Now, in a way, when you get started on this sort of thing, it's really, really quite a bottomless pit. There's a certain abyss to all of it because you can go so incredibly deep now that you can pretty much relate everything to some form of conscious expression taking place. But I think I've said more than enough to explain how Nadine eventually and if you look at where she had the eye patch in seasons one and two and then look at where she is in the return, you'll see that the role is reversed. The eye patch is on the other side of the face and she is now kind of reborn. The tirade, if you like, the internet rant show that Dr. Amp, Dr. Jacoby presents, has shifted Nadine's emotional perspective to better understand that she is the root of her own evil. She is the one that will make the choices to continue to allow the consumable violence to take place in her life, of which she is an active part, 
or that she can release and surrender that as part of an old pattern like we should release and surrender it in trust to our higher self to let those patterns go they no longer serve a process in our conscious evolution and this is something that in a way most of the character arcs presented in Twin Peaks go through to a greater detail I already went through that with uh, FBI agent Dale Cooper and I did that with regard to Sarah and also a number of other intersecting characters. So I'm thinking about leaving it there for now and just setting the stage for the next dossier instalment which will relate directly to Hawk. Let's look at Hawk and his heritage as a North American Indian, local to the area, and very much in tune with the folklore, the shamanic wisdom, and the deeper and darker subconscious expressions taking place through his heritage, which is then referenced in a major way to find something that the log lady said is missing. Thanks. Great, guys. So that basically brings us to the tale of the insight part of the show. And we're now going to have a special guest, Kimra Manuri, is going to have a chat to us a little bit about her thoughts on what she's been getting out of the pilot of Twin Peaks and maybe the first few episodes. So this is a track for you, Kimra. Your kind of style. Holler at you. And this is a track called Are You Ready Yet? from Flaming Groover.
tunes there, Are You Ready Yet, from Roland Dice in L.A. And that's for you, Kimra Minuti, who's with me right here on Magazine Radio, as we have a little bit of a chit-chat. So, Kimra, how are you doing? I am doing really well today. Thank you for asking. How did the, uh, the Aries New Moon pull up for you? Um, I find the energy to be rather abrasive. But still, like, productively abrasive. It's kind of weird. It is kind of weird. I think we had that chat earlier today, but, you know, we're we're sort of coming out the other end. content where I, I dissected the dossiers of you know some of the major major players in the game and you've had a chance to witness them on screen particularly you know in the pilot which is the introductory landscape what would you say would be you know did you have a, a favorite moment what really would be something that stuck out that you'd like to share with the listeners okay so and really quickly let me just clarify something I heard you say. Did you say that Leland Palmer was molesting Sarah Palmer? No, molesting Laura. Oh, was molesting Laura Palmer. Oh, yeah, his daughter. Okay, yeah, okay. I, I, I wanted to make sure I heard that clearly because as we go through season one, right, and we start to realize that there's way more than meets the eye to this little so-called podunk town, right? You know, like they... You know, um, Agent Cooper shows up and he's fascinated by this rural place where integrity and values still, you know, have a face and a and and, and a breakfast menu. You know, and then <laughs> um, and then you come to find out that the 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 town treasure, the prom, the prom queen, you know, is not only um, murdered violently, but is as we start to go through the season season. Um, it's like an onion being lifted and you get into this very deep, dark sort of look at the underbelly of this 
what could be phrased almost like a fundamentalist kind of Christian town, you know, in, in the values and the, in the, you know, kind of hunky-dory uh, kindness of it, almost like Pleasantville-ness, you yeah. know? And then underneath, underneath the Pleasantville, there's this, like, rotting, decaying core, which is fascinating, okay? Absolutely. And the allegory that David Lynch makes of, you know, this little town in reference to what's going on on the greater scope of the entire planet is perfect. And it's so ahead of its time that me watching it now, I don't know how many ever freaking years later, I'm really amazed as a newbie at the nuance and the detail and the layers and um, even the musical cueing and the, the cinematographic, cinematographic, I can't even speak. Cinematography. Um, yeah, the cinematography, like the ankling and stuff, because there are things that I don't know the names for, mm-hmm. but I recognize what is being done, and it's all extremely well done. Um, one of the things that really struck me initially was Sarah Palmer screaming when they find out that Laura's dead. Yeah. And did you kind of get the? Such, yeah. Did you kind of get, get the sort of the, the preemptive sort of feeling that she was already intuitively aware that something just wasn't quite right that day? You know, when 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 the show first opens and you know Pete Martell discovers and says to Harry Truman at the sheriff's office, you know, she's dead, wrapped in plastic. You know, what an opening! Right, and his voice is so perfect. Too. <laughs> she's dead. Wrapped in plastic, you know, and then that, like the um, the way that David Lynch almost exaggerates people's characters in an effort to draw your attention to specific um, plot themes or emotional states is really, really brilliant. And at first, when I saw that episode and Sarah Palmer is shrieking her damn full head off, and that's how I felt. I felt like she was shrieking her damn full head off because yep. it was so piercing. But it's 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 very, very well played to force you to kind of connect with such a such a shocking situation for a parent. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it was really interesting, the dichotomy of um, of the emotional timber, because, of course, it is, like, the early 90s, so it's kind of cheesy. and um, But then at the same time, all of the other layers and nuances and the way it's packaged is way above, like, what was happening at the time. Way above. Well, that's the so thing. Those are my impressions. That's the thing, you know. We, we're looking at a dystopian landscape that back then had such high shock value that David thought it would kind of get us, you know, really thinking about looking around, you know, what's happening in our own lives and and using the show as a way to reflect back on how wrapped up we'd become in all this kind of, you know, the consumable violence, all these really, really sort of intensive relationship 
debilitating type shows. And he thought, if I if I partner with someone like Mark Frost, who was the writer of Hill Street Blues, so he understood how to unfold a drama with great dialogue and the way that, you know, certain kind of angles would pick up the action and create a greater depth of field and all of that. He, he lowered us into this kind of false sense of security and then exploded the, the floor from underneath us when we all realised, as we got to the, to the funeral, where Bobby turns around to everybody and says, we killed Laura. We as a collective, we as the zeitgeist, are responsible for the being the protagonist. You know, we definitely waking up from the dream, realizing you know that we just committed a heinous crime, and that's something unheard of in the world of of, of what we would call um, a television speak. Because on the same time, you had Cheers, you had you had Howard's End, you know, you had uh, Full House, you had all these different types of you know, um, comedy relief shows, and then smack in the middle of it, you've got Twin Peaks, this huge sort of, you know, dive into the depths of, you know, um, somewhat comedy relief and despair within the, within the same breath. Right. So, you know what I, what I thought was really paired well, <laughs> and I don't know why, but I think it just speaks to my own strange thoughts is that I, I enjoyed Andy breaking down crying when he was taking photos of Laura. I, that, was, that's, that was one of my favorite parts of that first episode because everything when I first saw it was so weird to me. I was like, who the fuck came up with this? I was like, what, is, what, in, the, what in the hell is wrong with y'all? But as I got drawn, because like, that was my thought. My thought the first episode, I was like, what the hell is wrong with y'all? I was like, this is a cult classic. But then I got sucked right in. Next thing I knew, I was on episode eight of season one. And I'm like, Mike, I'm on episode eight. Because <laughs> you know? um, I had to figure it out, too. Who the hell did kill Laura Palmer? Yeah. Uh, it was fantastic. It was a fantastic cinematographic um, ploy to keep people on the hook. And I can honestly say I understand David Lynch not wanting to reveal the, the killer. Because yeah. like Bobby said at the funeral, you're right. We all killed Laura Palmer. We all killed Laura Palmer because everybody had turned a blind eye for years. That's right. To what everyone knew was a very troubled woman. Absolutely. And you've and got then, it in one. It really. was insane. It was. Everybody, starting with her mother, you know. And I feel like that's why some of the prophetic visions that her mother has in this, this show are really more of like her conscience trying to get her to pay attention to the fact that she contributed to her own child's death. Absolutely. And then, later, and then later to her niece's death, because look how she's on the floor um, with us, like with some sort of vision situation. She has like these migraines from visions. And then in the process of that, Maddie gets murdered. Absolutely. And she wakes up the next day, smokes her cigarette, and she's like, Leland, have a great day. <laughs> like she's the perfect mother who turns an eye away of their abused children. She's that much. Absolutely, because, you know, the whole thing is it's a suppressed metaphor that the abuse was understood and accepted. And, you know, yeah. and that's why, you know, Leland would give her the milk to drug her before, you know, he would be, uh, you know, the host Bob, you know, that he played Parasite oh. to. 
right, would take over and then essentially do the abusing. Leland wasn't actually party so to... Right. Yeah, right. He, he wasn't party to what he was doing in, in the physical reality, um, <laughs> but he knew something was kind of empty at the, at the end of every one of these abusive experiences. And he didn't want Sarah right. to suffer as a result, so he was drugging her with the milk, and that's why it was like, no, no, darling, drink all of it down because there's that darker aspect of you that doesn't want to recognize and solidify, you know, the wave function into corporeal reality, you know?
Right. Yeah, I, I can totally see that. And I, you know, I'm glad you said that because I didn't really notice the milk reference, but I see now better what you mean by that. Because I, I noticed she was drinking stuff, but I wasn't really paying attention to it because yeah. the whole timber and, and thought pattern behind the show from where I was looking at it from when I started watching kind of just made me think that everything she was drinking was alcohol or drugs anyway. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Like, I just kind of blanket statement threw her into that category. Because once you get past season, or episode one, and I guess into episode two or three, where you now finally find out that Laura had sex with not less than three people the night she was killed. That's right. Then you're like, oh. <laughs> and if you have any sort of psychology background, or you've watched enough of these crime drama shows you know that almost any female who kind of has that sort of quote-unquote track record has had some sort of sexual trauma in their life. Exactly. And for her to be at such a young age exhibiting this level of trauma with this sort of public persona, then that lets you know right there that this, this, this story is full of fucked up holes. And I'm glad you said that because, you see, what you've also referenced there is the disassociated kind of uh, emotional breakdown of Audrey that you have with uh, with her relationship with her father where she can't even really look at him, you know. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how did that make you feel? Did that make you... Yeah, did, you, did that make you feel? That traumatized me. That traumatized me, that scene. I, I got to tell you. I had to tell you that scene was so traumatizing because I could foresee her getting trapped in that situation. Yeah. And and I was like, you're an idiot. You think you can go undercover so that you can win um, Agent Cooper's love and approval and maybe bypass your way out of this cesspool that is this town because you're part of it. And you're now finding out how deep the cesspool runs and it's your dad. And you were like four seconds away from being his lunch. <laughs> How cool was that scene, though? I mean, you know, there's so yeah, many. It was such a. Br it's brilliant. It is brilliant. When she. It is harsh. It is harsh. And when she's looking through the mask, you know, at, at, through the mask, you know, through the opposite side of that reality, she's in this reality and she knows that on the other side of the mask lies this very, very visceral reality that she's desperately trying to escape, hence all the kind of Wizard of Oz sort of, you know, ruby slippers and kind of, you know, Dorothy feeling displaced and all that kind of thing. Those metaphors are very much playing out because David was a huge fan of the um, of the whole kind of you know Wizard of Oz situation I can't remember who the, the the composers were of that again was that was that Gilbert and Sullivan um I, I don't really know I can't I remember really uh, any, anyway I can't remember yeah but you know what it's it's interesting because they did a lot of Alice in Wonderland, Queen of Hearts imagery. Yeah, that's also right. Yeah. With, with that scene with Audrey. And it was very much about her being the spoiled rich brat and finding out how much her spoiled richness had cost others. Yeah. Well said. You know? And and that was that was something that was a harsh reality for her to learn, especially in the manner that she learned it. Like, oh, Blackie's like, don't worry, your daddy did this to me and I turned out just fine. Like, okay, we're just going to keep perpetuating the trauma. 
right? You know, and I'm like, wow, that's so what the age of, of Pisces was about. That's, that's so right. What, like, that's exactly right. Yeah, and it's so accurate. It's so accurate. And watching it from the perspective of where we are now and just being like, Wow, this is freakish. That's that's what this incredible, you know, this reflective mirror of of the breakdown of you know the time space continuum is really the the very core essence of the electricity motif of how everything is kind of being charged up and then re- released, but it can be released into a very chaotic spectrum and it can be released where it might start here, but it will end up here. So there's a lot of what I call the transference of the spatial energy between the different people and their given circumstances. And that is really something very fresh, very new in a show back then, you know. With, we had no internet, there was no way of really sharing the show other than, you know, through, you know, VHS tapes. Right, right. And, and you know, to, to bring that up, the context of the time that we were in, right, not only that, but for you to also bring up how Nadine which I didn't understand that the greased oil was the conduit from... Um, from Ed. From Bob. Yeah, for the Bob and the Mike. Because I kind of figured... I was like, something weird happened here, but I, I missed the transition, so I'm glad you explained it to me. Because that grease lightning <laughs> that got her runners silent <laughs> split, her, split her psyche open. And I was like, ooh, cool. From your... Psyche being split open to you wanting to kill yourself, to you overdosing on these drugs, to you coming back to the age where you first perpetrated the thing that locked two people in a path that they actually never wanted to go on. There you go. Because you made yourself available to pick up the pieces to something that you've been leeching and lurking on that was never meant to be yours. Mm. Well, exactly. Very good. Because again, you know, that's something that you only kind of really get a a deeper kind of picture when you've seen it maybe once or twice, you know. A lot of us peakies have seen these shows three, four, five, six times, you know. So every time we're picking up something else that kind of connects the dots to something we, we, we may have missed the last time we viewed the show, you know. Oh, yeah, this show has so many layers. You could watch it a hundred times and find something. (laughs) Like, legit. You could legit find it. Because I'm just, like, talking to you more and then, like, noticing that you sent me the timeline that there were all these other movies and things that come from this and, like, spawning it forward. And then there's a whole, like, 25-year reunion situation. And I'm like, whoa. I miss this whole universe. And I'm, kind of a, I'm kind of a science fiction nerdy type person, so I was like, "How did I miss this?" Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine because I'm enjoying watching it from an extremely fresh perspective right now. It must be the living, yeah, yeah. 
coverage of my my current lens to kind of suss out the underlying themes because they're fascinating. They're really just everything that's wrong with our society. Is reflected here, yeah, and I think that's great because to be able to, and I know the listeners, you know, especially the Twin Peaks uh, listeners that I targeted when we shared the um, the live stream schedule with the with the different Twin Peaks communities, and there are literally, you know, hundreds of different communities out there. The Blue Rose is very big, you know, twenty five years later is very big, and all that kind of thing. Um, they're going to enjoy these little discussions, these back and forths, because you're witnessing something for the first time through a 2020 lens. So your consciousness has evolved, just like the planet's consciousness, to a point where you can see things that may have been very much veiled in the, in the amnesia for us, and that were only kind of dripped through in bits and pieces. You're getting a great kind of onslaught of all this kind of stuff, and you can pick it up because you're already very much tuned in and aligned to a spiritual path. And David is definitely coming from a high spiritual value here. Yeah, I agree with that. I definitely do. And I also feel that um, I'm... I agree with the veil of amnesia. I agree with the fact that several years ago, I wouldn't have been able to tolerate this show, Uh Uh to be honest. And that even further than that, um, society itself wasn't even really able to look at certain of the things that we were looking at in other ways other than a show like this. Mm. So for me, I kind of feel like this show is like a a way-showing situation or a gate-opening to start the path of um, ripping these these hurts and harms out of our global consciousness. That's what I really feel. I, I love that. I really yeah, I love like that, Kimra. Yeah. I think that's awesome. I want to ask you now, now because you're coming from the feminine perspective and you've had a chance to experience what I call, you know, the the, the bevy of beauties, you know, you've got Donna and you've got Audrey and you've got, of course, you know, um, uh, um, uh, you know, Norma and you've got Shelley. What do you think of the the basic, uh, what I would call the... The, the, the congruence of these different female energies. Do you, do you feel that there is a suppression there or do you feel that there is a somewhat shadow power there? There is... There's, there's both, to be honest. Okay, okay. There is, there is both to a certain level, but um, overwhelmingly what I've found initially like in the first episode because the first episode is when i was just like what on earth is wrong with these people (laughs) and 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 it was because everybody who had a girlfriend in this town was beating their ass or sleeping with their cousin or sleeping with somebody else or like whoa what what is wrong with why is shelly getting beaten with a freaking bar of soap and a sock and I'm sorry, I laughed because it's I laughed because I I have seen the sock situation in other situations. Okay. And so that part of me kind of chuckled and was like, that's fucked up. But then the other part of me was like, what is wrong with the people in this show? 
And then the next part of me was like, well, that's actually accurate because today in 2020, the thing that my mother, my daughter and myself are actively concerned about is women like Shelly and Laura and Audrey who are in these places of disenfranchised, disempowered positions. Yeah. And who are led astray by their so-called hearts for these unfounded sort of loves that are not to their benefit. Like Shelly and Bobby Briggs? What a fucking disaster. <laughs> Why is it that everybody loved Laura but immediately was fucking somebody else, was in love and ready to run off? Like, her body wasn't even in the, in the freaking ground. Look, that's just what we call that, that sort of societal breakdown. You know, anything goes. Most of those women had very disassociated relationships with their fathers, right? Exactly. And Not th- only that, but they had very disassociated relationships with themselves. And so this is the part where now we start to reflect what the traumas are doing to the feminine faction of society. There we because go. Because everybody was in love with Laurel with Laura Palmer. Everybody. The men and the females. The yep. women wanted to be her and the men wanted to fuck her. And yep. that's how that worked. Yeah. Okay. And so this is that Madonna whore complex of the Pisces age. <laughs> that's great. That's great. It's exactly what it is. He played it out perfectly. This is the Madonna whore Pisces complex because in that disenfranchised, disempowered version of femininity, you're subjugated to your male counterpart. And every female was subjugated to their male counterpart in this. Josie was not even... Josie, you find out, was even also part of this. You thought Josie had a chance to get out because Caroline was subjugating her, but in reality, no, because she has a backstory that's some BS with some Yakuza somewhere and whatever. That's it. You know what I mean? That's it. so, so, So no matter who you were as a female in this show, and I haven't gotten further to see where Audrey's... um. Her character up. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah, but you know, but basically, like, nobody gets a happy ending in this bitch. Laura got the happiest ending, to be honest, because she exited out of this super screwed up reality that she was caught in, unfortunately. And nobody could extricate her in any other way than the way that she exited Mm, very interesting. I like that. When you get the chance to, after you finish um, season two and you go back to the movie to fire walk with me, when you get to witness who she really was for the last four days of her life before she before she met her her end, um, mm-hmm. it, it solidifies that even more because you really get to see the different, you know, the shadow, the doppelganger, the tolper, and the uh, and the beautiful girl next door, the homecoming prom queen, you know, kind of thing. And they're all at odds, and they're all at odds with each other. All those aspects of her are wrapped up in. Um, uh, prostitution behavior, drugs of addiction, you know, all of these different type of addictions and, 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 uh, um, what's the word? Um, um, personality, uh, disorders that play out on screen with, with the, in juxtaposition with the various characters that's really when you witness once again where David gives us all as the dreamers the viewers a second chance to recognise the intrinsic goodness in all things in existence no matter where they come from and that is really powerful 
powerful, you know, what I would call a very powerful um, uh, reflection of where society started and has evolved to a particular convergence point where it is today. I can agree with that. I, I can honestly also, let me actually, let me actually ask you this. Yeah. Do they ever reveal that Mandy and Laura are the same person? Because I thought that Laura would play Mandy. Am I incorrect about that or am I correct? Uh, uh, well, are you talking about um, uh, Dana? Maddie? Dana? No, you're Maddie. talking about Maddie. That's what I meant, Maddie. Yeah, well, yeah. yes, absolutely. But they don't actually, okay, so it never references it. It doesn't reference it accordingly. Rep Maddie comes from Missoula, you know, Montana. She's her cousin. And right, she's, but yeah. she's Laura. But she's Laura, absolutely. Right, so she's the, she's the, so this is the Madonna version of Laura. She got out of the town. She got away from the abuse. She was away. She was that, she's that second timeline, the saved timeline. That's okay? right, exactly. But because Laura drew her back in because Laura drew her back in then um, she ended up getting killed too she managed to be the the trigger point that brought Bob back from the the Black Lodge into this particular reality in order to commit you know to recommit another murder which, as you well, as you saw, you saw where that came from. You know now, finally, where right, the, where this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah. see, that makes sense to me because they had to kill an innocent to release a demon. Mm -hmm. you see, so it, it, that would make Maddie the perfect Madonna complex, and so it made perfect sense to me that you know we only got to really see Laura Palmer for thirty seconds in a body bag. So then let's bring her back correctly, pretty much, and utilize her in a very much sentient um, physical manner and then kill her off again. <laughs> so fucked up. Also oh, remember oh, too, um, Kimra, that David is, is, is looking at us, the viewer, and giving us these trigger points to help us to wake up from the dream and realise, well, hang on a minute, what are you attaching to? Are you, mm -hmm. And we were so wrapped up in the whole kind of the darker dichotomy. We were wrapped up in, you know, the Bob characters and the Mike characters and the man from another place and the Garmon Bozier and the, you know, the transfer of energy between electrical impulses and all of that stuff represented by the evil in these woods was where our conscious focus was directed. And all this time underpinning that was we weren't recognizing the beauty and the wonder and the loving nature of humanity embodied in the Laura complex. And so I, I completely see that. I completely see how that would have been a, a distraction originally with the time span and the veiling and the energetic availability of when this show came out. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's wonderful that you garnered so much from your from one viewing, really. Because, you know, it's it's so refreshing to be able to accelerate these discussions because you already have a grounding in the understanding of how the timelines of which there are at least three right are all right. playing out very much 
against each other. It's, it's, it's what we call the feedback loop. There's a loop there. Everyone's in their loop, similar to what you're doing at the moment with the Westworld um, uh, situation. That particular mm-hmm. feedback loop is being interrupted by glitches in the assimilation all the time. And it's also mm-hmm. happening very much in the timeline, you know, within the Twin Peaks community and then also what happens in the external outside of it. What's going on in One-Eyed Jacks? You know, what's going on, you know, with Josie over in Seattle and what's going on over here, you know, um, um, with the with the hospital case, you know, with Sylvia and, and little Johnny, you know, and all that kind of thing. They're all happening outside of the other timeline that's kind of shifting between one particular conscious space and another another level of conscious space that makes sense and and it it that makes sense and it it kind of the reason it's easier for me to see is like you said because i'm watching it in 2020 and now we've all had conversations about multiplicities and multiple universes and time bending and feeding back on itself and feeding forward all these things about bending time and minds and spoons and reality right so it kind of makes it easier for me to look at the interplay of the different characters and and watch where they're weaving the storyline together but even with that being said this is an extremely intricate universe yeah extremely intricate in that it really mirrors the malaise and the mindset of the previous age you know and and so it's, it's a really, really good show. And I'm looking forward to completing it. I'm in season two, season, season two, episode 11 right now. Um, and I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying watching the new characters come in because uh, I, I didn't know that there was a dissonance with David Lynch and the reveal of Laura Palmer until you and I spoke about it more when I explained it to you I was in episode 8. Yeah. And it was perfect for me because I was like, why the hell does Norma have a mom with a new boyfriend all of a sudden? <laughs> and why the hell did Hank come home? We didn't need Hank to come home. Exactly. You know? And so this is that was really enlightening for me because when I had been continuing with the plot as of the way David Lynch had wanted it, and then all of a sudden in the middle of season 8, Foolery arrived. And then you were like, yeah, they lost the whole audience with that. And I said, okay, that makes sense. You also got to remember, too, just to explain it a bit further, is that when David basically removed himself at that stage and he drew his attention to doing Wild at Heart and Mark Frost went off to do his network thing or whatever it was, they brought all these other directors in, people like Leslie Linklater, who is a great director and has done incredible work on the on the um, the series Homeland with Claire Danes, you know, which is a great show. Um, the, uh, uh, those particular directors had types of vision for themselves, you know, individual vision, but they still wanted to honour Lynch and they tried too hard to kind of, well, all i got to do is bring in a whole bunch of 
completely displaced elements and just throw them in the mix and see how they play out and I'll be getting into 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 Lynch's mindset and that way we'll be able to maintain and sustain the high interest value and it didn't it, because we knew that something was wrong these characters did not belong and I got to say and I want to ask you this question what do you think of James Hurley? Can we talk about James Hurley for a minute? You know, the, the ponziest biker that ever graced a screen. I mean, uh, what's his face? Um, James Dean is rolling over in his gut grave right now knowing that someone like James, James Hurley... James Hurley is his, like, bastard stepchild screen wannabe, or, like, TV show bullshit. Like, the most, the most pathetic Romeo on a, on a Harley ever. Oh, my God, dude. Seriously. Is that James yeah, that's <laughs> what the fuck. Seriously, man. I mean, I, I think I David think was taking the piss out of us. He's taking the piss out of going. I'm going to throw this really weak Ponzi character that couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag. You know, if he was given, you know, steel gloves to do it, because I think so, at that stage he didn't give a shit anymore. You know. Well, you know what? There's one level of that, and then there's another level. And because I've kind of thought about James Hurley in um, in a couple different ways, from the episode when he all of a sudden clings to what's the new girl Donna? Yeah, Donna. Do- Donna Haywood. Yeah, so he clings to Donna immediately because Donna is replaying Nadine's role now in the present. Right? I've, I've been waiting in the wings for my opportunity to get with you, and he's been waiting in the wings to service Laura and get a piece of, of the of the bonafide Madonna pie, right? He knows he can't keep it. She's way out of his league. <laughs> it's fine. And so he just wants a taste, you know? But that's poor James. James just wants a taste of heaven, but he's not... He knows he can't stay there. Damn it. <laughs> he doesn't have the skills, the class, or the money. Poor baby. He, you know? Um, so that's one version of it but then there's also the very um disenfranchised disenfranchised masculine energy but the more sane masculine energy actually okay and the fact is that he presents a less threatening beta male because every other male in the show is like this crazy alpha male trying to kill people or beat them in their sleep or sleep with other people's wives or we can't have any more alpha males. There's like so many chiefs, not enough Indians in this town. Okay. You know? And so to me, James Hurley was that kind of like perfect, perfect, like shitty gray knight that we you know you just kind of throw in. Like, here you go. He's not going to hurt you, girls. You can fall in love with him. He's not too shabby. But he didn't have any sort of strength, poor thing, because he's just as abused as Laura. Yes, so there the, you go. So the, other, so the other portion of it that I wanted to mention now is because he becomes the feminine in the masculine body. Well, he's that feminine energy that's disenfranchised and unempowered, but now shown to you in a masculine manner. Beautiful, okay? beautiful. Yeah, that's how I see James, because he was very kind and very loving, and he knew she was going to leave him because he knew he wasn't enough for the kind of crazy hijinks that she was part of and he just wanted to love her so she could see how he saw her and hopefully that would save her that's all he was trying to do 
he, he was but, hoping it was enough. He was hoping he that was. his genuine he love was. for her was enough. And he then was. later on, you're going to see just how e- how easily yeah. manipulated James is by women, is. right? He's Period. easily yeah. manipulated. Right. Yeah, he's totally manipulated by women, but that is reflected then, as you find out his storyline, by his own trauma. Because Donna was quick as hell to manipulate his silly ass. Like, it was five seconds into the manipulation that she was like, well, I'm going to see somebody else since you're over here gazing at Maddie, who looks like Laura, that you are already in love with, which I knew the moment she died. But I still wanted to sit here and try to manipulate you and get in like Nadine to make myself happy in a situation that's not going to benefit any damn body. So at the end, when James rides off into the sunset, because he can't take it anymore. No, he can't. That, that was the smartest fucking thing he ever did, in, bro. Like, <laughs> in 2020, when we now know that to keep your frequency high, you don't keep putting yourself into lower vibe areas and, and, and situations. And when you even look at it through the lens of addiction, where if in order to break your cycle of addiction, you leave the friends that keep you in that addictive cycle, right? Yeah. James did the only thing that he could do to save himself as such a weak character and 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 just representation. Yeah. He was way too weak to stay. Way too weak. He would have been cannibalized by Bob and somehow used to kill someone and swap wop wop. That's where James would have went, I feel, like down that pathway. So him leaving was was that was the that was the highlight of James's character. Like he grew a pair and fucking left. Good job. Absolutely. The conversation that he had with Big Edge, you know, as as he's you know, getting ready to leave was that I can't keep repeating the same recycle. I can't be in the same feedback loop here. I don't want to necessarily kind of find myself waking up tomorrow and just confronting the same again with just a different body this time, you know? Basically, and that's what he was on his way to doing by duplicating the situation with Dom. Yeah. And then he was right on his way to doing that again with Maddie. And any other female that would have just blinked her lashes at him he would have went it's you know what we what we can like term the age of pisces as is looking for love in all the wrong places that's a song there (laughs) that's 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 the line and clincher for the freaking age of pisces because there's a bunch of beautiful open-hearted people looking for the same level of open-hearted beauty and just getting ran through the road because they're open to all the wrong people. They're not open to the right version of love. They're just seeking something they think they can get without realizing that thing is within them. So they're always externalizing their own love and joy and self-worthiness. And so, you know, James was actually um, playing out a personality disorder which is borderline personality disorder. Oh, wow. Fantastic, man. Well, listen, hold that thought. Hold that thought. We're going to have a bit of music and uh, then we'll come back and we'll uh, we'll have a bit more of a chit-chat on what's going on. You're on Magazine Radio. You're with my guest, Kimra Minuti from Florida in the States. And uh, this is for the plasterers from the, uh, the Urban Dance Squad. You're on Magazine Radio.
was for the plasterers by urban dance squad from their 
life in perspectives of genuine crossovers. And you're with Mike Puskas and Kim Minuti from uh, Florida on the uh, Twin Peaks What Lies Beneath live stream. And I wanted to ask Kimra a little bit more about her thoughts on her initial impressions of Special Agent Dale Cooper. Okay, awesome. I love Dale Cooper, to be honest. <laughs> okay. And he's, he's my favorite. He's your favorite. Okay. He is my favorite. Yeah. He's my favorite character because for the time span that he was in, he's the weirdest character ever. Okay. Like, and? He has dreams that help him find clues. He uses these strange deductive and intuitive reasons. Like, <laughs> he, like, loves trees and, and all this other stuff. Like, he's very... Your, ear, your earbuds are dying, I think. Your earbuds are dying, I think. Okay, can you can you plug them in? <laughs> yeah, try this. Okay. Um, so, what it, Dale Cooper, I really enjoy him because he has this really fresh perspective for an FBI agent, right? Okay, okay. And he is very, um, what I would consider, like the childlike empress avatar, where... He's very wise, and he uses methodology that is not the norm, but he's extremely accurate in his ability to suss out what's going on, and um, and then is also prophetic in his ability to receive dreams and impulses to help solve things. And he's unabashedly himself. He's very authentic in his Agent Cooperness. He doesn't shift it ever. He never breaks his character. And I find that extremely important to point out because these are the heart virtues heart virtues that are resonating with our current society and reality. Okay. Because there's a point when Agent Cooper has the opportunity to disappoint us all. Okay. And that has to do with him and Audrey Horn. When he has the opportunity to fall into the trick of everybody else and Oh, her luscious, youthful form, and she's, you know, impressionable and eyeballing me and wants to help. And he neatly sidesteps all of that because his values are so clear and defined that his honor never allows him to even tread that way. He's very, very respectful, very respectful. And it's something that is very much not a part of the decade that we were in when this came out. Yes, at all. exactly. So that's what I love about him. Um, and I love that he opened an avenue for people to be weird in a certain way and have real jobs, right? Because he's an FBI agent. That's that's good money. Well, there's, there's the credibility. Ha he brings the credibility, too. Right, there's the credibility to it. Right. So, I mean, I think that's great. I, I like Agent Cooper. He is my favorite character as of, as of right now. Um and then you brought up something that I hadn't quite put together, which was who shot Agent Cooper. Yes. Because <laughs> I was so focused on who had killed Laura, I didn't really care who shot Agent Cooper. I figured it was just, you know, one of the henchmen that had been thrown in as the backstory. I didn't think it was that serious until 
you brought it up to me that it was actually Josie. Yeah. And that made way more sense to me because Josie, we later find out, find out in the beginning of like season two, end of season one, she has a lot to lose. <laughs> yes, heck of a lot to lose, and you'll see as you go along that the entire the entire polarity of her character arc is completely turned on her head because she and and Pete Martell are always in cahoots, siding against Catherine because Catherine is a ruthless bitch who's having the affair with Ben Horn and wanting to basically steal you know, the, the packet meal the from mill. under Josie and Andrew right. so that they can sell it as part of the Ghostwood development project, you know, to the Norwegians. And so when it comes to the to the empowered women in this show, yeah, Caroline is the only empowered woman in this show. <laughs> well, yeah, well, when we're talking about, when we're talking yeah. about Catherine... Catherine um, has or this. Catherine, yeah. Catherine has this incredible, indelible strength. She's unwavering. She's incredibly um, loyal to her own aspirations and ideologies. Right? There's no other world yeah. but the Catherine world, and you're, yeah. you're going to see how <laughs> how she's going to be able to once again. She'll be able to reverse the polarity in the relationship that she became estranged in with Ben when Ben basically, you know, dumped her for greener pastures and uh, and turns that around. You'll see just how she gets to basically demonstrate that that higher octave of feminine empowerment to bring the control program back on her side. And so I'm actually in the episode where she's doing that now and I'm truly enjoying it because when... Shelly survived the fire and nobody could find Catherine's body. I was like, I'm waiting for Catherine, right? I'm just like waiting for Catherine because I understand plot twist. So do you know, Kimra, Kimra, do you know yet? She didn't sign the, she didn't sign the the, the policy. Josie tried to get the policy signed, but Catherine was smart and the insurance agent was doing his due diligence through his licensing, okay, by showing up physically for something that was fishy for a large amount policy. And I am a licensed insurance agent. So I know these things. I know that you, when something is like that, you have to go check because otherwise you're responsible for the payout of that policy if you screwed up. That's something people don't know. Oh, exactly, so, exactly. Can I just exactly say, can I just say this? I am laughing and I have to laugh because I am so champing at the bit here. So you've met you've met you've met uh Mr. Yakamoto? Yeah, Mr. Tajaru Yakamoto whatever. That, that was the best freaking disguise. <laughs> when that dude showed up, I was like this is too much like Catherine for me to not. But I said I'm going to let them enjoy the play out. You know, I said let me not shortchange myself of the experience. Let me just play it out. So you, you so you do know. When she went and saw Ben Horn in prison. <laughs> and you know what my favorite part of all of this is even though Ben and Josie were or not Ben, Pete and Josie Pete were and Josie the yeah. whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Pete and Josie were in cahoots the whole time. It's just the dynamic of this town. Everybody's in cahoots with everybody whenever they're on whoever's side they need to be to survive. That's and it. that is really the truth of reality. That's really the truth of reality. You're only ever on the side that most benefits you if you're smart enough to 
be self-preserved and sovereign enough to know that you need to do these things. Otherwise, you become one of the disenfranchised pawns of the rest of the powerful people, okay? And so that's what Shelly and Bobby and... Um, Norma and James and, and, James Donna, and Donna and Norma are kind of playing out that part because they didn't go for what was going to be best for them. They did some BS, whatever it was, put whatever path they picked that set them off of the, the empowered path. And then they just get beat up by these other pawns. And one of my favorite lines is Pete when he gives Ben that message from Catherine. He's like, <laughs> she's a caution, isn't she? She's a caution. She's He's playing the, the, the tape recorder and he's just chuckling. And I love that part because... Pete is probably one of the truest people yes. in the show. Well, well so done. Well done. You, to a certain extent. No, you're okay. absolutely... He's purity. Right? He's purity he's incarnate. He's purity incarnate. Yes. He is. He's a very kind soul. He's very much in love with his wife and compassionate for Josie and encouraging of Hawk and patting Andy's back. Like, he is a very much the foil to Agent Cooper in the beta male. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. But a lot of people and wouldn't so, pick that up. A lot of people I wouldn't pick that up. They see, most people see, you know, Jack Nance, you know, and the reason why David gave Jack Nance, you know, Pete Martell, that, that character, is that they, they literally w grew up together. He has such a deep oh. respect for Jack, right? And he died most recently. Right. He died after he literally filmed his his last scenes, you know, in the in the in the return. Um, but the point being oh. is that David would never jeopardize or or take um, Pete Martell down a rabbit hole out of pure respect because he has so much deep love and and respect and joy for the man you know so he could only ever present him as the true embodiment of the intrinsic goodness in this world right like and, and he did a really good job with that you and you can tell that or at least i can tell that i can tell that they had some sort of a bond and i also have a real like i have a real resonant respect for jack nance as a as an actor yeah like outside of twin peaks because i didn't I didn't know him in Twin Peaks. I knew him in other movies, yeah. you know, and I enjoyed him in other movies as an actor. So for me, it's kind of cool because I'm revisiting old actors that I haven't dealt with in years in one sense also, and then um, just experiencing them from, from the viewpoint of David Lynch. And so for me, that's who Pete is. Pete is definitely that foil of the goodness of what manhood can be, even under extremely difficult circumstances like Catherine. And Catherine's relationship with Pete is a reflection of Norma and Ed's disenfranchised relationship also. Okay? Yeah. Let me just throw that out there. <laughs> yeah. No, it's good. It's no, good. Like, because what you're doing yeah, so is you're, it, you're really understanding the, um, the, the what, what we call the character play, right? You're understanding the character play, how, like you pointed out, there are those that are only about their own duality framework. It's about the me principle. And, and bugger you, if you get in my way, I'll find a way to move you out of my way so I can really, really kind of, you know, get what it is that I want. And, you know, right. you recognize that in those so-called movers and shaker characters 
versus those that, like in any society, there's hierarchy and class structure and all that kind of thing, Lynch is very good at breaking down those particular tiers, you know, and presenting them to the world through malleable characters that have a certain level of flexibility. Sometimes they can be grounded and very empowered, and other times they can be as flaky as all fuck and just fall to the side, you know, and uh, and, and just not have any back bone to kind of prop themselves up and move forward and we see that a lot with certain individuals in the show Andy is presented that way and yet he's very empowered when we get to the return you know 25 years later all of a sudden Andy Brennan and Lucy are back and oh my god let's look at the way their character arcs all of a sudden take on a whole new lease of life it's amazing what David does in an effort to give these characters the due dessert that they deserve. I like that. The Jew dessert that they deserve. <laughs> yeah, that was good. I'm surprised you didn't trip up on that. I would have. Um, but you're completely correct because Andy already starts to take on such an amazing character arc coming from that crying, wimpy perspective. And I like to see Lucy Moran's face like reflected as she goes he, he's too wimpy he's too mad he's too mad and then he shoots somebody and she's like oh you're kind of sexy maybe i'll be okay being pregnant by you there you go you there know, like, you go yeah so it's really awesome because um it, it shows how the the feedback between the character interaction is super important because in lucy becoming pregnant it empowered andy to become more strong and masculine to become a man exactly yes to become a man it empowered him and deputized him to be a man now because he he couldn't just be that soft want want want. he needed to protect lucy you know he couldn't be so sensitive and so that was great but it also allowed him to find someone who was okay with him being sensitive which is important because men should be allowed to be sensitive and still be able to shoot a bitch in the face if they need to. Let's, let's go. <laughs> now, can you we know, talk a minute? That's... Can we talk about Leo? What are your thoughts on Leo? Um, he has this interesting. He's he's one minute he's 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 on top of the clouds. Next minute he's lost and you know completely sort of disempowered. Next minute he's shot on the couch. Next minute he's a vegetable. I mean the guy goes through some shit, does he not? Listen, you thought James had a bad rap. I think Leo got <laughs> my God, what happened there? What kind of, that's that strange sort of living hell type torture. But this is also kind of um, the play out of a karmic cycle, you know? So I feel that because David Lynch really does come at this from a kind of a spiritual perspective, he is showing you what happens when you are part and parcel of this karmic loop of negative fuckery. And Leo was the unwitting pawn, but but very much willing pawn. Unwitting but willing There you go, there you go. You got it, you got it. Ben and the Renault brothers and One-Eyed Jacks, which, by the way, One-Eyed Jacks is a very vulgar um, allegory to a penis. Extremely vulgar. (laughs) And I don't know how many people have talked about that, but I was just like, y'all don't... All right, anyway. I'm laughing because you're picking up all the abstracts. You're picking up all the metaphors. You're picking up all of the the, the polarities. It's great, Kimra. You're doing really well. I'm just letting you go. Keep going. So keep going. We're we're dissing the shit out of Leo right now. 
Poor Leo, because you know I really want to be like poor Leo, but not really because no, no, he's a, he, he's a dick. For that damn, from for that sock, for that sock and soap bar incident, man. Okay, I was happy about that. I'm not gonna lie. I was like, good, you got your brothers, you bastard. But then I was saddened by the play out because of the Bobby bullshit. Because Bobby is 17, 18, 19 years old and yeah. a fucking idiot. He wants to tell. He wants to sing poor Shelly this crap-ass song that she really doesn't know anything about and, and, and tell her to get on disability instead of getting Leo in jail and away from her so that she could build her own two-feet life. And that is the part that I, I did not enjoy but was very much what was told to all women in this last age. Maybe. That you couldn't get through life without a partner or, or a man or a something you needed something like that you couldn't do it on your own that's right and that's not to say you needed to do it on your own but she could have very much sent leo to jail because she should have yeah and stood on her own two feet with norma at the damn diner and let bobby do whatever the hell he was gonna do because he wasn't gonna stay around much longer anyway and by tying herself to bobby's Hairbrain scheme <laughs> that shit backfired so horribly <laughs> Did it, it backfired so horribly and I was like boy ain't that a karmic fuck up from the furthest karmic fuck up you could get and that's all based on all of the choices there's so many levels and layers of choices that each character makes that causes this character arc that then falls back within itself like they they all talk about it all of them do this um sort of a sort of typical midwestern shotgun wedding shit like i'm trying to escape the shitty town and my issues and my problems i'm just gonna marry someone else who's trying to escape the shitty town their issues and this problems <laughs> and now we're trapped in the shitty town together <laughs> How did that happen? brilliant camera i'm just gonna keep going all right let's bring another one what are your thoughts on the uh on, on Margaret Lanneman, the log lady. Let's talk logs. I fucking love her. <laughs> I mean, come on. Tell me something. When you There's first saw... Better. When she first appeared on the scene, right, on the, on, on the screen, a woman, she's standing there, she's at the council meeting, she's, she's flicking the lights, she's got the log in there, she walks up to Harry Truman and Dave Dale Cooper and says, very, very seriously, very concisely and articulately, one day my log will have something to say about this. And I was like, what? What the fuck? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, my log? My log is going to speak about what? Oh. And then you realize that the log is a talisman. It's a, it's a channel. It's, a, it's, it's like a portal. You know, it, it, it has this kind of space-time um, uh, uh, transference kind of thing going on. And it's like, wow, I'm, I'm loving it. And then you love her because she's just so wise and she's so full of secrets and she's so full of, you know, um, knowing. I find her the great knower, the great seer. You know, the great owl, you know, in the human form. What do you think? Yeah. Well, to me, whenever I think of her in the log, I, immediately I hear the owls are not what they see. There you go. And then I think of, like, Grandmother Frog from Native American, um, you know. Would you like to share with our listeners about the Grandmother Frog? I think people would find that really interesting. 
Um, I, I don't want to misquote it, but Grandmother Frog is 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 an Aboriginal tale of the of the wise woman, the medicine woman, the herb woman, the grandmother of us all, the tribe tribal heart space. You know that yep. has all of the old ways in it that can show you things that aren't norm. So the things that Agent Cooper taps into and the log lady alludes to are all part of this grandmother um, frog uh, construct concept of being in another veiled reality and seeing more than what everybody else is perceiving. And so that's kind of how I tied her in. And she really looks like Grandmother Frog, too. And I wonder if David Lynch kind of picked her character that way. It could well be. It could well be. That, yeah, because she has that very much horned owl, spectacle glasses thing, the very blunt bang cut, and the um, shape of her head is like almost um, that, that Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland, like with the King of Hearts, you know? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, very yeah, much yeah. The King yeah, she looks very much like the King of Hearts, but all of these like allegorical um, meta constructs that weave together the concept that she is very much aware of the fuckery that's going on. And then that also helps you understand that now when they bring in the six secret society of the Bookman brothers, right? Yeah, the Bookhouse Why do you need Boys. A
Right, Bookman boys, right. So, like, that's why we need a secret society, because there's a lady walking around with a log over here talking about <laughs> the log done seen some shit. And we know that that's, the log definitely saw some shit, because in this now small town where everybody knows each other, we have nothing but bodies cropping up, and then the mill done burned down, and all types of crazy shit happened. My favorite scene with the log lady is when they finally show up to ask her some questions. She's like, y'all are two days late. <laughs> I'm crying. I'm crying a laughter, because I often feel that way. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love it. We have come at this from a really comedic perspective rather than terribly serious and don't get me wrong we're not we're not disrespectful we're definitely not coming from a a, a kind of a, a flippant and or disrespectful space we're just seeing david's comedic outlook of i'm going to put these people in front of people on the screen i'm going to dress them in a certain way i'm going to give them all these abstract motives around them i'm going to shoot them in weird and wonderful backgrounds and then i'm going to let the right. viewer and the you know the dreamers that are sitting there you know in the in the surreal nature of the dream kind of make head or tail of it find out what kind of works for them rather than me making things so damn painstakingly clear so that it becomes convoluted right and it becomes really rigid and we don't want the rigidity david's not into rigidity in any way you know but, and you can totally tell that it's extremely fluid the transitions yes character lines and storylines and back and forth and it only begins to get choppy when david leaves the fold temporary that, that's exactly when the fluidity is lost you can see it like season two episode eight david is like fuck y'all and then choppiness begins like all of these weird characters that are not in the flow of the original vision arise. Can you and just stop they, there for a moment and just recount for me if you can what was in what were the what were the the, the, the main points of interest in episode seven of season two? Just try to remember. Um that's the episode Maddie died. Okay. Oh, that was huge. Okay, that's a total David Lynch episode. Totally. Right. So, episode seven, Maddie dies. Episode eight, we start with um, with, with Sarah Palmer on the ground, I think, still getting up. Oh, no, no. We start with James and Donna coming to see Maddie because she's supposed to be leaving, but Bob didn't want that, so he killed her the night before. That's and right. Leland is playing Leland is playing golf in the living room to, <laughs> right. to so that people don't realize that he doesn't smash Maddie's head in into the wall. So that it just looks like he's gone off the deep end and we knew he'd gone off the deep end. He already got off on killing whoever he got off on killing for being crazy. So he's just continuing to play that crazy part through the Bob persona of the puppetry that Bob is doing. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, okay, okay. And so, so that's... So, so season two, episode seven, into season two, episode eight, is when you're still very much David Lynch. You hit season two, episode nine, shit done hit. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. Norma's got a mother all of a sudden, and her mother's got a new boyfriend, and her boyfriend's um, actually Hank's friend from the joint, and he's all these other crazy ass storylines and i'm like what happened to the log lady and are we still looking for laura and what's going on in the woods and yeah okay. why aren't the owls what they see 
<laughs> I mean, we, you got to admit, right? You got to admit, right? Coming from any sort of logical, rational normalcy, that is such an incredible allegory, isn't it? The owls are not what they seem. It just has fuckery written all over it. You know, I mean, I'm sitting there it going. Really does. It, 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 it really does. I'm sorry. It really it does. It really does. Yeah. And, and, like, and. What do you mean the owls are not what they seem? <laughs> then what the hell is what it seems? Because this town is already chock full of shit that it's not, it's not what it seems. Really? Well. The owls? We have to be worried about the owls now? Yeah. That's, see, that's, that's when it really gets kind of, um, really eerie. You know, you kind of it sort of cast this sort of like paranoia into the show. That's it, and the and the and the music and the constant um, abstract uh, metaphor of the wind in the trees. That's very representative. That the owls are restless and they're in the roadhouse and they're at the bookhouse and they're kind of watching everything and they know more than they're letting on and all that stuff. You know. Oh, okay. So then this is when I so I think it's between episodes. 9 and 10 is the first time you actually see an owl in this whole entire series. Yeah. Like, we talk about the owls not being what they seem from freaking season 1, but you don't see a single damn owl until season 2, almost the halfway point. Hmm. And I want to say that with all of the build-up on the owl stuff, when the owl finally hit the screen, it was shocking to me. Yes. I was like, oh shit, I saw an owl! <laughs> and it was perfect. It was perfect. It was perfect. Like I'm expect. I know, you know. It's good when a when a when a director really forces you to be shocked. Because I'm kind of a person who is difficult to be shocked. Because I've read a lot of books and I I understand a lot of plot twists. So shocking me is hard, and I love it when it happens. I knew that the owls would have to show up at some point, right? Yeah. But I wasn't ready for them then, and the way he inserted them, it, it was perfect. Yeah. It was it was perfect because I was really like, oh, owls! <laughs> and then now we're in the diner with Norma and her mom. Yeah. And I'm like, mm, I want to go back to owls. <laughs> well, I, I agree. I agree. I agree. You know, and you got to remember too, we've had a number of characters that have kind of left the show. Like, we, you know, what happened to Dr. Jacoby? One minute he's been bashed up, you know, we, we find later on by Hank, and uh, he goes back to Honolulu Bay, you know, and that's it. And we and we, we loved his, he was like the Alex Crowley of the show, right? He was kind of the wizard, but he was unhinged, and he was weird, and he was sexually perverse, and he was doing all sorts of, you know, um, uh, kind of potion, alchemy work and all that kind of thing. What are your original kind of or your initial impressions of Dr. Jacoby? Well, to be honest, I didn't expect him to last. Ah, ah. I didn't because of what you were saying, that he's really alchemical and really way off the beaten path and extremely pervy, not a little bit pervy, extremely pervy yeah. because the little tiny tidbits that he that we were able to evidence in the the audio tapes that Laura left him yeah just that glimpse is like you sick fuck you're four shades away from pedophilia your damn self <laughs> exactly. okay and so in, in in keeping with the way that David Lynch there was already enough of that deep dark sexual nature going on. That's so right. they didn't need to overload the show with any more of it. 
One-Eyed Jacks did enough of us for that, you know? Did enough of that for us, excuse me. Oh, so, yeah. Um, so I think that's why Dr. Jacoby just kind of went by the wayside. And also because there was that added reflection of him in a foil of Harold Smith. And it wasn't really worth the amount of body counts to, to kill Dr. Jacoby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Okay, no, that's good. That's a good That's a good, um, a good. analogy. I think that's great. He does come back in a very big way. He becomes David Lynch's megaphone of the zeitgeist in season three, which you haven't even got close to at this stage, and it's a good thing. Oh, my God, I'm excited to see that. Yeah, yeah. It, I'm excited to see that because I figured there was something to it because they did kill him, and he did serve a purpose as a foil for like a like an in between version of Ben Horn and Jerry Horn. Okay, good, be, good. Yeah, like there's a weird synergy between the Horn brothers that Jacoby kind of like tap dances in between there, you know. So I'm interested to see how he comes back in season three because. We didn't get that much of him in the early seasons. No. The part that we did was enough to make him a potentially extremely powerful character. Like, he was seated well for a 25-year Green Girls comeback type thing. And the, and the other thing on the, on the real scale of things is that he was so... Um, he was so disappointed when he heard that David was going to depart that he thought, well, I want to get written out. I'll get beaten up, okay, they find the necklace, they kind of catch me in the act, they dress up Maddie as Laura and, and catch me and uh, and I'm bashed and I'm hospitalised and I smell scorched engine oil when, you know, when Leland comes in to kill Jacques and, uh, and then right. I go back to Hawaii and then I'm out because he did not want to hang around without the guidance of David. So I think David then turned around and said, all right, well, when I do the return, when I give the world um, their third and final chance to get it, which is what he did when he bought the return, that's why he called it the return, um, I'm going to give you a very strong um, thread. I'm going to give you a character thread where you'll be there from episode one right till the end. Nice. And he's in it. Nice. So you will get to see him in a very different role. He's still he's still as crazy as batshit. He's still off the fucking chart, but but at the end of the day he has a very uh he has a very distinctive role and and purpose in the in the show. So that's, that's good. That's cool. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. How about the log lady? Please tell me she gets to come. Oh back no, she does because Mark. No, she does, but she's she she literally dies um, three days after filming her parts. Um, so it's it's a miracle. It's a miracle. As and David and Mark both agree with this and say this very in, in very loud tones. It is a miracle that we managed to capture Margaret Landerman in her reprised role as the log lady, and uh, while she was so desperately sick with cancer. In the return, you see her with air hoses. She's completely bald. Um, you know, she's on her very last legs, but her role is still very, very visceral. It's still virile, and it still has a great deal of presence to it. So don't worry. You'll be well, well um, satisfied by her. Please, Diana, 
She made it. I am really, I'm like a little teary-eyed about it, to be honest. Yeah, like, yeah, well, I was, I was. I'll be honest with yeah. you, I was, when I saw her on screen, I went, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. 
look at her. I mean, she's so unwell, and she looks like she's so frail. And oh no, I was I was devastated. And literally, yeah, three days after she filmed her part, she she passed away. So did Jack Nance. Um, and that's the other reason why the next conversation we can have, and a lot of our listeners are really, you know, wanting to talk about, you know, will David bring back? for whatever reason, and this COVID-19 and the whole kind of demise of the world and the reset that we're all going through could be the perfect trigger point to say, you know what, this is exactly the right time to do season four of this show. Because he has no other reason to do it. He has no other reason to do it. He left us with such a quadruple-level ending... Right, the very last few moments on screen on the return are, 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 are unlike anything in in television history you've ever seen, and you've never seen anything like it. It's so it, you, like your heart is pumping at a million miles an hour, and you're thinking, "Oh my God, this is it! This is the resolve! This is it! They're going to work it out." Laura, Dale, Dale Cooper on screen, Judy's house, it's all happening, and then. Like a flash, it's all the rug is pulled completely, totally pulled. Wow. David at his absolute quintessential best, but I don't want to spoil it for you because you obviously are going to get a huge kick out of the return, like all all of us did. <laughs> and uh, and it's eighteen fucking hours, man. Right? It's eighteen motherfucking hours, which is great. You know, it's awesome. But I want to move well, can forward. I say one thing though, yeah. that I am so thankful that I waited till all of this shit was done to start watching it. Yeah, I am yeah. a person. Yeah, I'm a person who absolutely hates waiting for any season. Oh. Like I hate it. Like we're like Corey and I are doing Westworld right now, and literally the only reason I was like, yeah, I'll do it, is because season one and two are already done, and season three is already working out and in progress now yeah otherwise i would not even have done it because i cannot stand um the emotional distress of waiting for an episode that like i'm one of those people well let let me stop you right there if you don't mind sunshine because we we were made to wait when laura turns to, to to dave dale cooper in the black lodge in the in the scene of season finale and says I'll see you again in 25 years. And she was looking at us straight down the barrel and we didn't get it. We had no idea. And we waited 25 years and then all of a sudden, bingo, David turns around and says, oh, well, it's time to do another uh, season of Twin Peaks. Laura said it's 25 years. Well, it's 25 years to the day. So can you imagine what it was like to wait for 25 years? 25 years! Listen, I just want you to understand that I am fucking thankful because I would have murdered myself. I am am such a dramatic, like, want-want, whiny baby when it comes to, like, TV shows. I had to learn to divorce myself from this sort of situation because I would wait for bated breath. Like, and I would be upset about it. I would be losing sleep. Like, 25 years of losing sleep, old people were born and died. I can't. I just can't. So I just want to say that at least I have been blessed to catch it in the bitter end for the most part now with all of these beautiful 
conversations and all of these great YouTube videos that point out things that I don't need to watch endless hours of repetition for. Yeah. Like I am thankful for that because I'm, I don't know if I would have made it. I don't know if I would have made it at all. Cause I have the tendency to disconnect from things if I've got to wait too long. Well, I got to say, I grew up, look, hey, absolutely. And I got to say, we're so thankful that you are going to get this opportunity because you were blessed. You were totally blessed. To... I totally was. I'm agreeing with that a thousand percent. You know? I'm totally blessed. And I'm like so excited that season three even came out. Like, what? That's cool. And I'm only, what, five or six years late on it? So that's perfect timing for me. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's awesome. All right, I want to move forward if we can. Can we talk a few more characters before we bail? Yeah, who do we have? Who do we have left? Oh, Jerry. Let's talk about Jerry. All right, let's talk about Jerry. And then I want to talk about Harold Smith, who gets left out of the conversation a lot, but has a... But I don't know why. Let's talk about Harold Smith first. Because I feel like Harold Smith is a foil for Jerry. Oh, well done. Well done. Go, girl. You're on a roll. Tell us about that. Okay, so... So, Harold Smith, right? Oh, God. I loved Harold Smith in his extremely agoraphobic living situation. Yes. He's a shut-in. And I love the part where they showed what happened when he left the house. Yeah. That was the part that, for me, was the best. The part that I didn't enjoy was Donna doing all that crap to him and then still leaving the damn diary. Yeah. I wanted to slap her in the face. <laughs> like, if you're going to traumatize this poor man because you're too ignorant to understand his illness, that's one thing. But at least accomplish the goal that you're traumatizing him for. Please. Because in the process of her traumatizing oh, him, he left the damn diary and he still gets murdered in the oh, process, poor thing. And great. the diary gets, like, shredded to pieces all over his house um Houston I got problems with that I I, I got problems but it's okay because that is sort of the disenfranchised disempowered personality persona that Donna was playing of this like level two um level two Laurel Palmer you know like the beta version of Laura yes Absolutely. So, yeah. So when she, so that part, that was the part that I, I really disliked about the Harold Smith situation. But then the secondary portion of the Harold Smith situation that I really enjoyed was how he's like all creepy pervy talking about how he writes these beautiful stories of his lovers because he's a shut in. And I'm like, you know, that's just a really creepy way to say that you're like, a, you draw people into your home and have them like you're a really weird ass therapist because these things go nowhere. They're just for your own like private visceral pleasure because you're living vicariously through others. Yes. Because you don't want to master your own mental chatter to get the fuck out the house. <laughs> Got it in one. So, yeah. So, so now you're luring one. young females in on this route that's how you're doing it you're luring them in on this route and that's creepy as hell to me and then norma is unwittingly fostering the route for drugs and meals on wheels and probably sex trafficking (laughs) because that's what was really going on in twin peaks the underlying rotten edge of it was the whole conversation which is currently playing out in 2020 right now about sex trafficking and Hollywood and all that other crap and babies and pedophilia and all that crap Uh really really weird really really good really really nailed it on the head and here comes Harold Smith 
with his creepy ass stories that he's garnered from people and looking very youthful for all these experiences and stories like how are you barely over 23 looking Harold in a shut in with this nice house what did who'd you kill for that house <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm thinking funny. his mom's buried in the backyard you know like some weird ass shit happened I don't know there, but, there you go there you go you're absolutely on it you know so do you do you think that you know that Laura kind of met him by accident or was it something that was kind of more pre-orchestrated that Lynch was kind of like no I wanted to have a backstory there but I didn't want to necessarily explore it you know in a in a kind of a a, a reality or a, or an alternate reality manner what did you think about the, 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 the pre-existing relationship between Harold and Laura? I thought it was very much an onion skin layer to the fact that nobody really knew who Laura was. Okay, okay. That's how I felt about it. I felt that because it was very creepy. And Donna is so disenfranchised and weird and unempowered in her own right that instead of recognizing this sort of creepy cognizance of her personal stories told to this man that she doesn't know by Laura, or maybe taken from Laura in some sort of weird sexual manner that we don't know, because um, in whatever episode it is where they find out that Laura and Ronette have been tied up in two different ways with two different fibers, you get to realize that there's a lot of weird BDSM fetish-ass crazy shit going on with the drugging of the sex trafficking and all that under... You know what I mean? So it's like, what kind of creepy shit are you into, Harold? Do you want her on... What are you bound up with? Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, and, and because the things that he was relating to Donna, anybody who has a more grounded self of sense and has come from a place of... of maybe surviving sexual trauma and overcoming it will be your antenna goes up yeah like your antenna goes up immediately like you're a shut-in great i'm leaving your food on the doorway <laughs> like that's fine i don't care how pretty you are how pretty and innocent you look like uh, okay. like okay harold to me was like a bambi sort of guy ah. he looked like bambi you know, very innocuous, very sweet, very like, oh, you know, boho chic, and I'm not going to hurt you. Very um, gingerbread house candy witch. All right, all right, all right. I get you. I hear you. It makes sense. Yeah. Well, and then, so that's why I feel like he's the foil for Jerry's very overt super sexualized, super drug addicted, super blah, 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 blah. You know? Like, he's the the, the, the background noise to the Jerry chatter. Yeah. Jerry just being way the fuck over the top. Well, very much so. But can we hold that thought a moment? Because I will let you know that Julian has stayed up really late as well. He's been listening. And he's just said, um, mate, what happened with the maze? And I said, oh, I don't know, man. I played the wrong thing. And he went, well, I've just sent you the right thing. So I programmed it up. And I would like you to hear it too, Kimra, if you don't mind. So right, cool. I'm going to play uh, this track, The Maze, from Mile in its proper glory with Ricky singing. And let's see what everybody thinks. So you're 
on Megazine Radio. You're listening to the Twin Peaks ridiculously long um, What Lies Beneath live stream with Kimmer and Mike. And this is The Maze. Inside, what you gonna do? 
many lies, so much direction, so much sky, so many opinions, so many lies, so much direction, so much sky. the maze by mile right here in melbourne you're on magazine radio you're listening to the twin peaks what lies beneath live stream with your host mike puskas and my special guest kimra manuti from florida in the u.s kimra what'd you think of that track did that kind of float your boat at all i love that track i actually really enjoy the type of music that you play because uh, i listen to a wide variety of music but currently, I tend to mostly listen to electronic music. So okay. it's a kick for me to go back to, like, my rock roots and my my different um, non-mainstream music that has a lot to do with instrumentals. Like, So I love to hear people singing and guitars and, like, Correct. it's great for me. Oh, so cool. I, I really enjoyed that. Oh, thanks. We appreciate that because that's a brand new track. And obviously, there's always a little bit of apprehension when you release something new because you're always excited, you know, and uh, wanting to kind of get an idea of what people's thoughts are about what it is that you're playing. So that's uh, really, really good to know. So let's continue right here on Magazine Radio. Uh, This is going to be... Uh, definitely a, a live stream that we'll be sharing um, on, on in future days, but we'll be breaking it up into many different episodes because it's uh, it's been a, a very, very long but very enjoyable and pleasurable experience discussing, you know, these first, uh, what I would call first-rate uh, reactions to watching Twin Peaks, the pilot, and the first two seasons. So we've been dissecting the character arcs, I suppose we get round to some of the other characters that I'd like to get your thoughts on. Do you have any thoughts on... Oh, no, we're going to talk about Jerry. That's right. Let's talk about Jerry right, from your point of view. Jerry. Please, yes. Right. So, before... Do we ever meet Audrey's mother? No. Oh, no. Okay. That's what I thought. That's what I wanted. That's what I thought. Because... That's another 
portion of it that has to do with the disenfranchised feminine divinity in this show. That the person who is perpetrating the majority of the sex trick foolishness, right? Because we later find out that Ben Horn is the one running One Eye Jacks. He owns it. He's the boss. He tries all the all the merchandise out first. Yeah. Him and Jerry. Him and Jerry tag team the merchandise, which is disgusting <laughs> and very much what happens. That's right. You know, Casting um, couch, if you don't mind, there it is. Uh, listen, it's this is part of reality. You know, there's times when there's 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 a time and a place to pretend that things happen. There's a time and a place not to. And I think that David Lynch brilliantly began the conversation in this show about the things that men think are okay and that women accept as okay when people are actually being hurt in the process, but they're not speaking up about the fact that they're being hurt. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of men feel that it's okay to pass females around. Well, and it's not. That's, and that's fine. It, well, it's, 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 listen, I'm, if you're an adult and that's what you're into and it's not because you had some sort of crazy ass trauma as a child that makes you think it's okay, that's one thing. But, with us now learning in the Me Too movement that the majority of females had some sort of screwy-ass sexual trauma happen to them, you can't really say that that's okay. Or maybe you can't, but, you know, for me, I'm just going to kind of look at it from the perspective of a bunch of disenfranchised, disempowered individuals okay. making choices based on their traumatic past. Okay, okay. Now, this makes a lot of sense. I understand where you're coming from. That makes sense. Okay. And so then when you start to look at Ben's, Ben and Jerry's character, which is Ben and Jerry, ice cream, yeah. right? <laughs> you picked it up. And well we go, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we go right into the consumerism of it because, <laughs> because Jerry is your mass consumer of all that ails us and at high velocity. Like, if they didn't do a scene with basically Jerry doing lines off of hookers' asses type shit, like, they just missed the boat on that scene. Because that's the kind of personality he had. You know? Yeah. He's very much that extreme addictive personality and very lack of regard for feminine um, anything. But yet would turn around and play like this caring uncle to Audrey in a really creepy way, you know? Really creepy way. Very. And I think one of my favorite parts with, with Jerry is when Ben is in, in jail and Jerry gets there and he's so fucking wasted <laughs> from God knows where. And he's looking at Ben and Ben's flipping out because Ben at least knows he didn't kill Laura because he was not going to waste his own merchandise, right? And, and then... Ben looks at, at, or I mean, Jerry looks at Ben and goes, I strongly suggest that you get yourself a better lawyer as your friend, your lawyer, and, <laughs> and your brother. brother. And started, right, and I'm over here just crying because that was some of the best advice that man gave anybody in that show. Like, oh, man, don't do me. He's like, don't rely on me. You will be disappointed. That's you know? 
and look, I have to give it to him for being true to his character. Oh, that's great. That's so good. Honestly, that is so good. It really is. Oh, it was priceless. I, I was sitting here going, you know what, Jerry? I have a newfound respect for your disgusting ass. <laughs> <laughs> that's priceless. And Ashley Judd, you know who you know, is a great actress. Is, is plays uh, his secretary. Uh, come in and done a cameo role in the show because she loves the show. And uh, so Ben Horn's character has been completely reversed, and Jerry has been made ten times more batshit crazy. <laughs> right. So, so, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do a spoiler. So, so basically, Jerry walks in with a beautiful piece of homegrown cannabis. Uh, spread marmalade that he is homemade from his own stash, which, he, which he's oh now put on this beautiful crusty bread. He's now consumed it, and uh, Ben's just got his head in his hands. He's going, I don't know you, you stupid fucko, uh, at the end of the day. And Jerry goes out with his backpack and, you know, and his weird clothing out into the bush, the forest that he grew up in, that he knows like the back of his hand, and he gets lost. He gets lost for the entire season. The entire season, there is Jerry out there, and every time he has a glimpse of breaking out of his bondage, his prison of, of, of the forest, of the woods, he can only ever see the most horribly negative situation that David could muster. So they really fuck with Jerry's mind in, in, in the return. So no. you'll, you'll love that. Wait you'll... a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you just telling me that David Lynch created a 3D, 4D reality and blocked Jerry into it and trapped him there? Pretty much. That is fucking brilliant. <laughs> but, but when you see him... When you I can't see... wait to see this episode. I can't wait to see this. When you see the episodes and you see how he's dressed and you see what he's doing and the fact that he's he's got his mobile phone and he, he kind of holds it on his chest and he's, right, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, it's going to be, this is the one, this is the one, now throw it up in the air. No signal. And every time there's no signal because there's no service and signal in this alternate reality that Jerry is tra trapped in until David chooses <laughs> to release him. <laughs> So it, it, there's great fuckery. There really is some fantastic fuckery in this third season. You're going to love that. I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm excited because, like I said, I found it fascinating. I was really put off initially, but then it just sucked me in. I was like, what in the hell? Okay. But then I was like, what in the hell? I got to keep watching to find out what in the hell. <laughs> That's right. You've got to, you've got to keep many. watching. You've got to keep watching because that's what it's about, isn't it, right? Yeah, and he did a great job with that. He really did a great job keeping the audience guessing, keeping the audience engaged, keeping the audience vocal about it. Because you said there's thousands of groups and there's just like a whole cup following it. I can see why. 
I can see why. And then the whole adding the 25-year wait on season three, well, damn. You just birthed a whole new generation of people to be addicted to this crap. There you go. You see, that's the whole point. That's the reason why David wanted to see if the mood of the people, the consciousness of the people, had shifted in that entire time. And in the end, he realized that nothing had changed. It had just got worse. And that we were now wrapped up in kill, kill, kill video games and virtual reality and more VR and more consumable violence and, you know, and more sex trafficking and all this kind of thing. So he kind of created the return with a theme that was basically based around nothing, right? That's what it really is. I mean, it's great. You're going to love it. The characters, the stories, the arcs, in and out of the lodge, bad Cooper, good Cooper. It's all happening. But the show predominantly is a huge... He got his he got his um, he got his dick out and he just decided to pee in our face and said, you know what? This is what you guys deserve, right? You deserve a show about nothingness because... It's all about non-existence, and you are non-existence, and you and you never were here. You thought you were here, but you weren't part of the, this reality at all. And you're kidding yourselves. And it, really, he just constantly pisses all over us each episode, more and more, until we get to about. I think it's about where does it really? It, well, it kicks into real high gear on episode eight. There's never been anything like it. You know, the whole nuclear explosion, the Trinity test, the the whole kind of you know uh, the, the 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 birth, you know, the death of innocence and the birth of chaos and violence. And Bobby's birthed in a giant bubble of fucking you know rotten eggs through the vag of Judy, the mother of all evil. And oh mate, it's. It's it's full on. It's absolutely full on. You're gonna you're gonna be like, ah, oh, what? Well, huh, huh? So you know, but, that's gonna be interesting. But you can't do that because you're still about to go through more owls, right? You're about to discover our cave. You're about to get into the the throes of the character of Wyndham Earl, which David and Mark wrote specifically to win us all back. And it worked right. to, to a greater degree. Heather Graham comes in as another girl that basically Bob wants to, uh, you know, possess and all that kind of thing. So you've got a lot of interesting uh, story arcs that are going to play out for you now. But in order to wrap things up, because it has been an incredibly fabulous show, I've really enjoyed it. Um, I just looked at the time. It's five o'clock in the morning here. <laughs> Um, But before we do, before we do, before we do, there is probably one more character that I got to say, I, I really liked a lot of people didn't in real life in actually the so-called crews and cast working in the show. This particular character was considered to be an absolute pain in the ass. David, was not a very happy camper when it came to this character. But I want to talk about her, and I think she's worth a little bit of discussion, and that is the character of Donna Haywood, Lara Flynn Boyle, the the, the weepy, 
somewhat kind of try-hard wannabe that you see probably dissected a little more deeply, even though Lara was not invited to be played the part in Fire Walk With Me. But what were your, what were your kind of impressions of, of Donna Haywood versus the Audrey Horn character, which was a lot more easier to kind of follow and stomach her storyline? Actually, I didn't even feel that Audrey was more able. I didn't even feel that Audrey was more stomachable. I found them to both be um, just kind of lukewarm, disenfranchised, disempowered pawns of the entire construct, really. What I was kind of watching Donna do was try to find her way to the alpha path. Um, and that's what I was seeing her do. You know, that's kind of what I noticed about her as opposed to Audrey Horn. Now, Audrey Horn, people like her more than Donna, really? Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. Oh, everybody loved Audrey because Audrey had that. See, Audrey didn't hide her innocence, whereas whereas, um, um, Donna did. Donna was always Mm -hmm. trying to be ahead of the curve, right? She was always sneaking out. She was always upsetting her, her her father, Doc Haywood. And, of course, there was a reason why her mother was um, was in a wheelchair, but we won't get into that right now. Um, Donna was incredibly... How do I put it without kind of diluting her position... I think she was the I think she was the Laura that Sarah always wanted but never could have knowing what her particular dysfunctional family had represented for all those years. So whenever Donna came into the picture, Sarah relaxed. Sarah kind of was like oh, my God, if only these character traits of this wonderfully wholesome young lady would rub off on my Laura, I could be the the happiest mother alive. Did you get that from her? I did get that, and I think that's probably why I didn't actually care for either of them because they're both playing such disempowered roles. Because Donna is coming in as the supposed bestest friend of Laura, who is on this hellbent theme to find the truth about her best friend, right? Yeah. But the only real reason she wants to find out the truth is because she wants to get to the bottom of the dirt because she's been pretending to try to be like Laura. And she's just over here picking up all of Laura's scraps, okay? And so I guess from that viewpoint, I can see why people wouldn't be so thrilled about Donna because she's really a beta. Okay, um, okay, okay. She's a beta. Fe- she's a beta female thought pattern, and it's and it's the not cute friend. She's like that step down friend that everybody has to make themselves feel better about life, you know. But she's got good enough qualities so that you can use her as a foil so that when you're sneaking out at night um no i'm out at donna's house oh okay you're with donna well she's doc hayward's daughter everybody knows she's a good girl like that was the kind of thing that donna was struggling against 
Like, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's why he's best friends with, on the surface, the goody two-shoes of the community, but it is the sneaky queen of the underworld. Good. I like I that. Find it fascin- I find it fascinating that they didn't kill Don, to be honest, because of because of the position that she was in. She was in the position, according to herself and how she says it to everyone, to know all the things that Laura was doing, right? Yeah. She knew she knew about all her different boyfriends. She she knew about the different boyfriends. She had, had an idea. For, I would hazard to say she knew very well about the abuse that was happening in the home. You know, and um and so so from that standpoint, I don't know. I don't I don't see that I would particularly care more for Donna over Audrey. The only advantage Audrey had over Donna was that she had no female influence in her life at all to make her act right one to keep her safe two and then the people that she was dealing with were the perpetrators of all of the fuckery in the town and so that's the only reason she was protected from it that's the only reason otherwise she would have just been trotted out like the rest of these hoes because mm. that's how they that's basically how ben and jerry were treating the whole town yeah, no, absolutely. They were basically using it as their meal ticket the whole time. I understand that completely. Yeah, they were pimping everybody in that town. And so that's the part that I enjoy about Catherine is that in the end, she ends up pimping Ben. <laughs> and that is beautiful. That is, a, that is, that is the that, most empowering probably moment for me. That's a classic. Me. Honestly, <laughs> that is a classic moment. And yet, funnily enough, all these YouTube videos, and there are some great ones, you know, Wow, Lynch, Wow, and the Twin Peaks universe and all that. None of them actually consider that moment when she starts stripping off all her, her oriental fucking makeup and mo and a fucking wig and all this shit and just basically stands there and curtsies in front of Ben and says, now how do you like that for fuckery, mate? You know? <laughs> because she had no, he had no idea that she was, he, she was playing him so incessantly and so openly and in such a rather kind of a, a, a very detached kind of way. Yet no one really, really picked up on that as one of the highlights. And I do, and you obviously do as well, you know? Well, I'm sorry that people miss that because to me, there is so much metaphorical um, symbolism in her, first off, dr- dressing as a subservient Asian man. <laughs> well one. done. Oh, this is awesome, man. You get it. You totally Bro, she's get it. only four foot nothing. It was perfect. <laughs> she shows up as a subservient Asian man. And the other part that I love is when Pete Pete is like, "You look terrible," and he's hugging her and kissing her. That is my favorite reunion. That's a beautiful thing. To be honest, because it is so, it 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 just it's such a beautiful point and shows the timber of Pete's character and the nature of their relationship with him being accepting of what a ball busting bitch Catherine is. Do you remember? You know the, I mean? Do you remember like, the bar at the North? At the Great Married? You, exactly. But do you remember at the bar at the Great Northern where Catherine's standing there waiting to go and have have a meeting with Ben, and, and Pete's standing there, and he goes, "And they arrest him." And no, 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 no. And Pete turns around and he said, "Buy you a sake." <laughs> and she said, "No, thank you." 
No, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Which is so pathetically weak, you know. There's not even really, you know, any kind of credibility to it. And Pete just sort of, like, smiles and, like, oh, okay, well, yeah, maybe another time, you know. So there are so many what we would call those aha moments where everything could fall apart in a second and yet Lynch kind of manages to maintain the dramatic tension between the two characters on screen and pulls it off and pulls it off brilliantly. He really knows how to do that and do it well. Does it really, really, really well, you know? So what I'm going to suggest, what I'm going to suggest is that we didn't talk about probably one of my favourite characters, um, and that was Harry Truman, right? Harry, I think Harry Truman. God, how, he's a great character, right? But we could probably save him for another day. I was going to say, let's let's save him for the next episode, for the next discussion, because to lead off with him, we'll then be able to really dissect all the different characters at the sheriff's office, which means we can talk about Hawk, we can talk more about Lucy, we can talk about Andy, we have to talk about, of course, you know, Dick Tremaine, the total idiot, you know, the try-hard, you know, male salesman or whatever it is. And <laughs> Dick Tremaine, that was great. How's the name? How's the name, Kimra? Yeah, I love Dick, that. Yeah, Dick, that was perfect. Dick, that was like Dick oh, Tremaine. <laughs> Dick Tremaine, like you know, he's not gonna last. He's just that half, half-ass mistake that was the other side of the sperm coin for the Maury show. That is Andy and Lucy. You know, like it's a, it's a, it's a Ricky and Morty, mo- a Ricky and Morty moment. That one, that's what, without a doubt. Look, yeah, I want to, I want to say um, to to all our listeners, thank you so much for for sharing this time with us. I don't know how many of you are still with us, and if you are or you're not, but I can assure you that we will um, of course take the recording we've been recording the entire time and we will break it up and uh, and share it with you again right here on Magazine Radio you've been listening to the Twin Peaks What Lies Beneath uh, live stream um, radio show with my special guest Kimra Manuti. Kimra thank you so much my earth sister it's been absolutely such a pleasure to share something that I have so much deep love and passion for. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, it's a pleasure for me to go down this rabbit hole with you on something that I would have never picked up, and I'm finding that I'm really enjoying it. So, you know, it's cool for me to pick up on these nuances that everybody else has been analyzing for 25 years, and I, I got to catch it on the bitter end nice and easy. So thank you for that and the opportunity and I look forward to speaking to you again, Mike. Absolutely. Thank you again. Thank you to all our listeners. And uh, please stay safe. Draw a little self-love into your unified energy field. Kind of recognize the intrinsic goodness in other people. And just look for peace, tranquility, and balance in your lives. Things are going to get a lot more easier next week after Chiron decides to bugger off from, from Aries for a while. And we've got Venus coming in to, to try and the North Node, which is going to be absolutely spectacular. So from me, Mike Puskas, your curator, your host, thank you again and wishing you all a wonderful day. Good night.